Welcome to the Ether. Today is Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. Today on the Ether, a Doquan AMA. Hosted by Pantera. Let's take a listen. A day. Here, you can't even get like a hospital named in a, approved in a day. Like, you, there's, there's no way. Um, our, co- our response, we tried to build hospitals quickly during COVID. And like, the, the results were like laughable. Um, and I just think that that's the, this, we were so weighed down by bureaucracy and people scratch, needing to scratch each other's backs and check all their boxes on like, you know, with the bribes and kickbacks and the parties and the blah, 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 that talking about the government efficiently, effectively coming after something, especially when it's a topic that is like debated, right? Like coming after all the crypto holders and some of them are in Congress, right? I I just don't, I don't think that can get anywhere. I think it's really valuable as FUD and not much more. Yeah. I mean, I I do think maybe the one sort of weak point um, for this, this industry is like, the the fiat to crypto on ramps where if you can choke those and say hey you can only use like this certified on ramp um otherwise we're just going to shut it down like that's a good place for them to start i think but then the the more that you think about it it's like well at that point <clears throat> they have to basically shut down like all regulated e-commerce because any website from like a foreign country, let's say the Bahamas, which is is relevant to recent conversations, could say, oh, well, you know, we're going to sell you a, a digital asset that can be redeemed for for Bitcoin or Ethereum. Uh, come to our website, our company's based in the Bahamas, and then the U.S. doesn't have jurisdiction, and then you can kind of easily swap out from there. So maybe that's really not, maybe that's an over-exaggerated kind of choke point for, um, you know, for, for regulators to go after. But I don't know. Maybe I could be wrong about that. We have Lil Deke. Um, Lil Deke. You want to talk about your Lil Deke? Nope. And then Avatar is L. That is that is great. Well, do you have anything light, to say, or light. you just want to take up space on stage? Just take up space. All right. Welcome to the stage. I can appreciate uh, the honesty, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just a big fan of uh, like the. Speaking of Lil Deke, we are waiting for Do Kwan to join. Um, I'm going to go Co- and try to Coach reach is, out. Coach is the one that's uh, talking to him to get him here. Coach, are you – what's going on? I know Coach is in communication with Doe via some private channels we have. He just messaged him. Coach, can you give us an update? He, <clears throat> he says right now he's eating his lamb chops with the recipe that somebody in the, the rebirth chat gave him yesterday. And after he's done, he'll come right on. Okay. We're very excited. 
about this and and to hear about his lamb chops actually coach's accent is like 99% on point i bet a lot of people can't tell it's a it's a fake he's putting on to to disguise his uh, country of origin is that true coach is your accent fake i've always thought it was genuine <clears throat> <laughs> oh and anyway so <laughs> Uh, you mentioned that uh, the end of the Russia-Ukraine war might bring uh, about some clarity or like positive direction. Um, man, I mean, I, I, for those of you who don't know, and that's probably most of you, I used to live in both countries and work as a translator from both languages. Um, so I have friends on both sides of this thing that I've been like, you know, alternating between like sending money to, trying to get out, trying to support, trying to like, uh, some of them are fighting, some of them are running. I, I support both. Um, but uh, it's. <laughs> It's, it's, I mean, they send me pictures and stuff from the ground. There's definitely uh, still a lot of stuff going on. Um, Ukraine in particular now is dealing with like rolling blackouts that are on purpose because most of their power structures, their power, their infrastructure is down. Um, so they have to like treat like proportion power. So you have like a certain amount of time per day where your cell phone works uh, and stuff like that. Um, and so figuring out like whose phone is up at any given time during the day has been a super challenge. Um, but all in all, it like the, the, one of my biggest takeaways from this is like kind of an optimism that you can't realistically in the era of internet and social media popularly wage a huge scale war. Uh, maybe I'm speaking too soon on that point. Maybe like fascism, nationalism will like take over in some area that I don't see, and like you know, billions will die in World War Three. But like, it's it's really like like I couldn't imagine something on the scale of World War Two happening uh, right now in an era where every single violent act would get like published to the internet, and the perpetrators would be like like vulnerable to repercussions for the rest of their lives, you know, like every single time there's something like that. Um, so, I mean, I'm hopefully optimistic about like this, you know, as long as the internet remains a free place, it's, yeah, there are some bad things that spring from that, but you know, one, one of the great things that springs from that is that if you're going to go shoot somebody uh, you know, you can't be guaranteed at all that you're not just being recorded from somewhere. And then you're going to have to answer to your state, to another state, to public opinion, to your fan, to anybody uh, who, who gets that. So, I mean, I, I think like as much as I'm in for privacy and I really don't like, uh, you know, on principle, the idea of CCTV cameras everywhere, like they see inside my windows and stuff. Um, there's something to be said about that idea that like I can't act without fearing that someone might like show the world, you know? Um, and so like the, the parties involved would potentially be able to like slaughter thousands of innocents. And I'm not saying that's not happening, but uh, like with, with impunity, without it even being detected, kind of like how much of the allies didn't know uh, you know, at least the rank and file and probably mid-management and maybe even for the early war, the upper echelons didn't know about concentration camps. Uh, and then it was when they found the Germans' records and things that they were like, oh my gosh. Uh, well, similarly, like Russians, ideally, or Ukrainians can't get, or anybody, uh, it's harder for them to feasibly get away with mass murdering thousands. Uh, because if they did, it would be, they'd be accountable for it to some degree. Um, 
So I, I don't know. I, I think there are paths to World War Three, uh, but I don't think it's an inevitability. Evan, back to you. We're like spitballing on global topics here. You lived in China and I've lived in in Russia and Ukraine. So we uh, we've got some chatter to talk about on like the, the hot topics of the global system these days. Right. And I think um, just to add some color to like what you're saying, the worst possible thing you could be, at least in the West, is a Nazi. Right. That's the worst possible thing that that you could be there. You know, there's no like salvaging yourself if you've been labeled that. And and that's part of, I think, like this. um that's part of like this broader sort of info information war. Like war has gone from the battlefront uh, and, you know, weaponry and, and, you know, God forbid that it returns to that. But it, I agree with you in the most part that it, it really won't because it's turned into this like economic and um, this information war where now if you can convince um the if you can convince your followers that your enemy you don't even have to necessarily convince them that you are um in the ethical green margin and what i mean by that is you don't have to necessarily convince them that uh you're right but if you can just convince them that your enemy is evil or more wrong or aka a nazi which you know you see thrown around so much it's been watered down to the point where it it means nothing basically um then you can you essentially have the green light to just do whatever you want. And so in a way, I, I agree with you that maybe we won't see sort of like this World War One uh, trench warfare, World War Two, you know, like battlefronts across all of Europe. Um, but what's interesting is when I say info wars, it's not info wars where you're trying to convince people um, that aren't that aren't. Um, that don't agree with you or, or maybe aren't necessarily like within your jurisdiction. It's info wars of you convincing people within your jurisdiction that, Hey, like we're the lesser of two evils. And so it's a worthy cause to, for us to, you know, bomb the middle East, for example, or kill innocent people in whatever, or, or take down this dictator in some country that, you know, for, for political reasons, we really have no business being in there as the, the American regime. But for, you know, because we can run a couple ads or a couple uh, news stories on CNN, we could talk about, you know, why that was was justified for us to just be, you know, the regime kingmakers in the Middle East. And so I think China does a very good job of this as well. And I think people underestimate that they um, they can convince and have convinced a lot of people that it's worthy to oppose the West. It's worthy to oppose the American regime. And I'm not I, like, I don't want people to think I'm like taking a side here one way or another. I think both I, I'm kind of disgusted with both sides at this point. But um, you, you might see it get to a point where, OK, well, now if videos do leak of, let's say, one side, you know, torturing the other or one side uh, using inhumane ways to to attack the other side uh at the end of the day that side's already been convinced that they're that the ends justify the means and so it, it won't mean a whole lot and then of course whoever wins then gets to rewrite history which exactly is exactly uh, that was gonna be my chime in 
it's the victor who gets to choose what was right and what was wrong and who was the asshole during what and how things are perceived, right? That's true with some limitations. I mean, there are wars in history where the victor is not the party that history looks kindly on. Um, but yeah, in general, in general, it's definitely true. I thought it was interesting when you were talking, Evan, about the like labeling people's Nazis, you know, whether justifiably or not. Um, that's exactly the labeling. And I don't think this is a piece of Western propaganda at all. Again, I have friends in both armies uh, in Russia and Ukraine. Um, and it's harder to communicate with the ones in Russia because I'm afraid that like they'll get arrested based on a text I send them. Um, but I, I still am able to because I've lived in both places. But uh, the like, like the Russians are generally told that there are Nazis in Ukraine, um, Nazis in Eastern Ukraine, and this is supported by like uh, some small amounts of like media and events there. Now it's hard to say what's a plant and what's not, what's like what like actually happened and what's kind of fabricated. Uh, but you know, it's, it's not like they just believe that necessarily without any proof. There's some videos circulating and so on. And this readily convinces a lot of them that there are indeed Nazis again. And Putin's been trying to cast it as another great patriotic war, which is what they call world war two, uh, where 80 million Soviets died defeating Hitler on that front. Right. Um, and now, now I think he's generally failed. Um, and I don't think that the war is going to pan out anything like he thought. But I'm just saying, when they wanted to motivate people to go in and kill people that, like, like frankly, are ethnically very close to them, speak the same language they do, live across their borders, have been through the same trials, have a lot of shared history, when they wanted to motivate their soldiers to go and kill those people, they did it by saying they're Nazis. So just prove your point yeah and i think um again we're, we're waiting on doe to come in uh i know coach is working on it behind the scenes uh we're in a group chat trying to talk to him apparently he's finishing up his lamb chops so uh coach has assured me that doe will be here uh, sometime in the next two minutes uh but to back back on topic here um i think that world war ii uh, I so I just watched this movie on Netflix, All Quiet on the Western Front, which I suggested you watched, um, Pete. And it's like the craziest movie ever. It really gives you like this, uh, this really bleak sort of out like outlook on on what happened to the the trench fighters in World War One. And it made me kind of dive a little bit deeper and revisit a lot of the, um, the politics surrounding World War One and like pre World War One. And then post World War One, and um, during that time, it was it was the the Europe was very much like uh, a bunch of these sort of I don't know if you want to call them more nationalist uh, empires that were sort of like chucking and jiving for for land and for power and resources and yada yada. And um, you know, it's it's interesting that the in that era which really ended like after world war two, you had, um, after world war one, you had this, the, you know, the roaring twenties with like some of the more, I guess, commercial innovation and like machinery really took off to the point where you could mass produce things like, um, I, I, the vacuum cleaner is like, you know, a, a commonly referred to one, uh, maybe like the toaster and things like that. And so 
you really started to become like this, uh, this globalized economy like we saw. And then this bubble popped and all of a sudden everybody was in the shit and we still hadn't turned, we still hadn't turned it into a global economy that could kind of recover from that. And so then you have like the rise of uh, communism and fascism. And so that's what created World War II. But that was really like the last time that there was sort of this clear divide. Uh, and I don't mean like a divide, like right down the middle. I mean, a divide across so many different um, like political spheres and, and different nations where after the, the dust settled and all was said and done, you could look back and be like, oh, this was, you know, this country was clearly this, this country was clearly this, this country was clearly this. And then, you know, you can say they were right or wrong based on, on kind of where they stood. And, you know, then you move into like the Red Scare and communism. And there's a lot of people that uh, support communism. And there's and there's like you, you turn into these proxy wars and you have things like Vietnam, where now um, the U.S. is going in and getting involved in a country that maybe they don't have any business being there in the first place. But they're trying to push back like the, you know, the advances of communism. And now all of a sudden you end up in this in this. Um, this age that we're in now where there's not a clear, like, it's very hard to look back and say like, yes, this was the, you know, these people stood on this side and these people stood on this side on, uh, you know, for whatever, for whatever issue. And that's what I mean when I say like, we're starting to get into, uh, instead of just battlefield warfare, we're starting to get into like, like info warfare where regardless of what's really happening, how can you convince the people on your side that your side is right? And I think, as I've gotten older and maybe more jaded, there's this applies so to so many places where it's like right and wrong. It's not black and white in almost any circumstance, in almost any circumstance. And in today's world, it's even crazier that like, you know, the lines have been skewed and blurred and grayed even more. And so um, I, I don't know. I, I think it'll be very, very interesting to see because I do think we will reach a point where like we kind of do get back to that like all right, like they think they're right. We think we're right. There's no, it, we've reached an, an impasse or whatever the word is there. The French word, I'm sure Pete speaks French fluently, surprisingly. <laughs> and uh, and I think we will reach that point where again, like you, you can kind of draw those lines based on whatever conflict comes up. But for the past close to a hundred years, uh, 80 years or so, it's been very murky on like where people stand. Should people be here? Should people not be there? Um, so yeah, I don't know. This is totally unrelated to crypto. No, I mean, well, we're waiting for Do Kwan to uh, to join us. Uh, we hear that Coach is working and promises he's coming. Um, since we've covered that, the major must be like, some serious lamb chops. Since we've covered though the major dictators and um, like you know maybe hideous regimes of the last hundred years or so, uh, when Do Kwan comes on, the good news is is like it can only get better from there, right? Like so. <laughs> so like let's say i don't know he wrecked a lot of people or something um you know it, it like it's but it wasn't as bad as say the nazis or hitler right well <laughs> we've reached that whatever it was right that's a very good point we've reached that yes. that famous like coefficient or whatever that is the length of time before an argument like compares somebody to hitler 
Um, yeah, so if you but, start out with Hitler, it can only go uphill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You've already hit it. Go. <laughs> um, yeah, but to, to Evan's point, and I think this applies beyond like war. I mean, it's not just look about looking at the conflict between two nations or, or a whole bunch of nations and trying to discern what the real like causes are. Um, but, you know, the things that happen in crypto and so on, there's already there's always hidden incentives and incentives that people want to keep keep hidden um, because it wouldn't look good on them or they would be liable if those incentives like were to become known and their acting in self-interest was to become known. Right. Um, and like that's uh, I, I had this friend um, I used to the very first job I had as a developer, I was a systems developer. Uh, at like a small business and it was run by veterans from Vietnam. Uh, and you know, they all had like canes and various things, not all of them, but had like, they, they, they had injured, sustained some kind of injuries, uh, mild injuries in the war. And, uh, you know, it kind of sucked to talk to them about the war because they always like had this, well, we, this picture, like we went there to like defend freedom and defend our country and to, you know, and, and to get our college bill paid or whatever, but we, or we, cause we got drafted, but in general, we went there for freedom and country. And then we just kind of all learned it was all about drug money. Uh, and like, I don't want to dive, I don't know firsthand, but just story after story about how, uh, like that, that was where the drugs are flowing. So there's drug money flowing or oil money flowing or whatever money flowing that dictates where the media focuses its attention or the U S military focuses its attention. Right. Um, I don't think that's a big secret, but it, it reminds you that there's always like a bunch of parties, even if this wasn't the intent when going into Vietnam, when we said, Hey, we're pulling out of Vietnam, there are parties that figured out how to profit from the current situation. Kind of like Rothschild's betting, betting on both sides, famously of Napoleonic wars, right? There are parties who figured out how to profit well from the situation, even if they weren't at the start who then like don't want it to stop. Um, it's like whenever uh, a war, it's, we propose that a war ends, there's kind of this soft feeling among a lot of the small businesses that support the military industrial complex, that that's going to be a bad thing because we're going to have fewer orders for body boxes and gun boxes and whatever boxes and whatever things. Right. Um, so th like there's always these hidden incentives that people are following and you might not know who they are uh, and they might be powerful. They might be central or they might be like ancillary and they can just contribute a little bit. And that's true in crypto affairs. That's true in crypto blowups. Will there will be a narrative that emerges within crypto and without of like exactly what happened around FTX and three AC and all that. And it's just, it's going to be more complex than that. And there are going to be factors that we find out and factors that we don't know. It's what's known as the fog of war. Yeah, like, exactly. There's just always this obscure future that you can't see this kind of this wool over your eyes that every single actor in the war has over their eyes. There is nobody in control. Like, that's all just an illusion. Because, like, I don't know what you're going to do. You don't know what uh, Evan's going to do. Uh, Evan doesn't know what Coach is going to do. <laughs> Coach doesn't know what Doe's going to do, etc. right? So it doesn't really matter um, sort of like who thinks they're in control. When you have so many people, uh, masses of people in a war, uh, whether it's in you know crypto, whether it's in, like it doesn't matter what it is, like there, there are so many unknown unknowns for everybody um, that uh, like the best laid plans can, can be, end up going to waste. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's the invisible hand too. Very similar concept, even though, 
like even if the the market isn't as free as originally conceived of the there's just like so many actors with known and unknown intent and known and unknown skills and success and luck and so on that it's like an invisible hand is sliding all these levers up and down um and that's why economists like when economists speak and make policies they kind of seem sometimes like they might just be like rolling dice you know and reading bones uh economics is yeah, like I think, this i think economics is a bullshit field actually yeah like, i don't recommend anyone go do that in college it's a stupid yeah. nonsense field that like it's trying to like assign math to human behavior and it's not very good at it um it's and it's not particularly very predictive nor prescriptive either so it's like it makes way more sense to go into like uh like an undergraduate level or whatever it makes way more sense to go into some sort of science-based field and then maybe like go into business or some other um you know subdomain but like economics in general if you that's what you do like from the beginning you're you've convinced yourself that you can um you can sort this out through logic and math and it's just not true to to t- go back um quickly to like we were talking about like the characters and how you know that maybe the the narrative now on uh sbf and ftx and all this shit uh you know it, it's hot it's it's emotional it would go as well, uh, who is hopefully joining uh, if Coach will come through on his promises to the entire community. Um, but w- the one thing that I am curious about is your guys' thoughts on a specific character. And he's from a couple years ago, but he has had like a really strange redemption arc. And for those that aren't aware um, of Arthur Hayes and and his history, so Arthur Hayes, used to run uh, BitMEX. I think it was BitMEX. Bitrex, BitMEX, I get them confused. No, BitMEX, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so so BitMEX at one point was like, this is like the precursor to Binance. Like if you got listed on, on BitMEX, it was the place to be. Uh, they had, you know, 100x leverage before anyone else. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm talking like maybe 2016, 2017. And Arthur Hayes, uh, he was the founder, the the CEO, that you know, the the Doquan of BitMEX back in those days. He was a, I think he was like a, a commodities trader for Deutsche Bank in Hong Kong or or one of the top banks in Hong Kong. And it turned out that it came out in the news that BitMEX was taking. They basically were taking positions against their uh, retail customers. And so it's actually very similar to FTX and what happened with with, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, where you, you know, as the exchange owner, you can kind of see where everyone's positions are. So you can tell if, hey, you know, 70% of my customers are uh, leveraged up long on Bitcoin and the the price is $10,000. And if we can sell a bunch of Bitcoin right now, uh, take out a loan of Bitcoin and sell a shit ton of it. We can liquidate all of them and we can make a ton of money. So it's basically cheating, right? It's it's deflate gate. It's uh, it's water gate. It's it's every gate that you can imagine. And so finance is doing that even to this day, actually. Like it wouldn't surprise me if finance gets shut down at some point. Um, well, yeah. I and I think that's heresy. That's the problem with a lot of these centralized exchanges. And, and the reason why people shouldn't trust them, for, you know, with anything, not not just to steal your funds, but to 
actively trade against you because now this is the second time that we've seen, um, you know, a large centralized exchange um, publicly admit basically that they were trading against their customers because FTX, excuse me, did very much the same thing. Like, why would FTX lend money to Alameda unless they knew Alameda was going to take a winning trade? And Alameda would take a winning trade because they knew the the customer positions of FTX. And so you have these things that happen. But but what I really wanted to get to is like the the persona of Arthur Hayes, who was doing this. Now, granted, it was, you know, five years ago when crypto was much less in the in the spotlight. Um, but he's he's made a resurgence and he's a writer. Um, I, I read his blogs. I think I actually I, I enjoy his writing and I think he's a. Uh, a very insightful guy. He's got a, a great macro, you know, background. Um, but he's he's less of like a villain now than he was five years ago. And I wonder if you think that Doe or SBF, and I don't want to put Doe and SBF in the same bucket. I think like what SBF did was way more egregious than Doe. I actually would compare SBF more to, I would compare Arthur Hayes more to, um, to, to what SBF did, even though he's made a comeback. Uh, I think what Doe did, you know, it boils down to he ran a protocol that that had an underlying error that, um, you know, maybe we got a little bit too big for our britches and, and flew too close to the sun, blah, blah, blah. But like Arthur Hayes and SBF, these guys knowingly traded against their own retail customers. And I'm curious if you guys think SBF has a, a redemption arc similar to that. Well, SBF will... Actually, they're definitely trying. I mean, you saw that WSJ article. I don't remember if I mentioned it in this space or another one, uh, like an opinion article that's like, uh, you know, it's it's not SBF's fault. It's his fan base that turned on him and literally compared him to Donald Trump, saying the same thing had happened to Trump. Um, uh, yeah, well, no. SBF <laughs> would be lucky if he doesn't take a dirt nap, quite frankly. Uh, the odds that's, of him, like you, you can make a bet about whether one of us is going to kill him first. Like that's a. I mean, entirely. that's true because of the yeah the players that were involved and that lost money or have like huge reputational risk here. Definitely true. But someone that has started their comeback, and this is more of like because the space has forgotten and moved on to new villains than because they write good content like Arthur Hayes, right? I don't know if you've seen it, but Suju has been having like a platform uh, all around um, in, in like news publications and on, on his own Twitter now and other places where he's kind of shifting the blame for what happened to three arrows and, you know, talking a lot more about Sam and stuff instead. Um, okay. Let's, let's talk to Noller who just came up on stage. Noller. I mean, I think I think the big underlying thing with a lot of these characters that come back is there's like a semblance of charisma, um, which I don't know if you guys have watched many SBF videos, um, but I don't think he has that charisma to really control things uh, and sort of make that comeback at all, to be honest. Yeah, I think if you've heard Arthur like speak, like he's very like succinct and like able to articulate what he means and does it well in the same way that you said you like his writing regardless of what he did like the writing is still provides value to people and that's why people are more forgiving to it right it's almost like at the end of the day you see someone that um maybe they took advantage of of the system but 
they did it in a way where it's like, fuck, why didn't I think of that? Or like, you know, this guy's not a bad guy because if I was, you know, in the same position and, and saw what he saw, like I would have taken the same opportunity or taken advantage of people in, in the same way. Whereas with SPF, yeah, you're right. I mean, I agree. He doesn't have that charisma and he's kind of like easy to just be like, you know, fuck this guy. And, and one, one thing that's very different between SPF and Arthur Hayes as well is Arthur Hayes has always been very clear on like his position on Bitcoin and being pro decentralization and being anti-government. Whereas SBF, he he probably could find some allies in the space had he not become this like total vehicle for pushing centralization and his ties with Gensler and you know their their attempts to push towards um, you know centralizing things and, and like getting rid of DeFi and like even just his um, his interview with Eric Voorhees. Uh, like a week or so before the the collapse, um, you know, the, it, it drew like a very clear distinction between kind of where he stood on the issues where Voorhees asked him like, hey, should everybody that sends an email have to KYC before they send an email? And and what's the difference between that and sending money? And and he, he hesitated and, you know, everybody on, on Twitter dunked on him. Um, whereas, you know, Arthur, he was he was more on the side of like, you know, fighting for the people and maybe, you know, took advantage of that in, in a, in a way that wasn't <laughs> the greatest way possible. I don't know. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know, Pete, you, Pete, I'm going to toss it back to you. What are your thoughts on this whole scenario? I mean, yeah, I, I, I agree in general. Uh, I think you're, you're spot on there. And like, it was regulation. In fact, it was, it was Sam's uh cozying up to regulators supporting a bill which is uh, it's kind of an odd bill it like it, it wouldn't have prevented the ftx collapse i'm not talking about the loomis bill i'm talking about the one he supported that's um and, and it would have been restrictive and yet not even protected people from what happened in this case right um but uh you know that was the reason the idea that sam was going to regulators uh, talking about businesses that needed to be regulated. And when you're talking about crypto exchanges, which one are you really talking about uh, other than FTX, right, these days? Uh, and that's the reason CZ used publicly to say, uh, yeah, you're going to try to get regulators to to sick on me. You know, after I invested in FTX, you're trying to sick regulators on me. Now, is that the real reason that Binance kind of, you know, pushed over the first domino by selling their their FTT, which they had legally acquired. Um, probably not. Maybe. Who knows? Again, fog of war, uh, invisible hand type stuff, lots of actors. Um, there could be, like, for instance, there could be CCP involved or there could be anti-CCP sentiment involved. I have no idea. Right? Like, uh, it's complex. But the public reason that Sam just handed to him on a platter was going all pro-regulation in a way that could definitely affect Binance, their like lead investor. Um, I think that was just, that was a stupid move. It may not have caused the collapse. Obviously having the house of cards in the first place, eventually there's going to be a breeze. Right. Um, but it, it was just not a smart move. I, I, I think that, you know, it's easy to say this in retrospect to hindsight is 2020, right. Um, you know, suddenly everyone knows that it was obvious that FTX was going to collapse when in reality, very few people were calling that out at all. 
there are some, but you know, I definitely wasn't one of them. I didn't, I write, write rust code all day. I don't have time to, you know, talk about things like that. Um, but you know, that was in hindsight, it doesn't look like there were a lot of smart decisions made in this whole story. Well, just like there was, you know, every genius that I met at consensus in June, uh, when, when they inevitably asked what I did, I said, Oh, well, you know, we were one of the top validators on Terra Luna. And they said, Oh, well, it was obvious that it collapsed. And I went, Oh, it was so obvious. So you must've shorted what let, show me your PL that you made on the short. And of course about 1% of them actually knew what the fuck was going on or were able to actually profit off of this obvious collapse that they were so sure about. Um, but you sorted soul in the last one, right? Well, yeah, but I, I think I was even late to the party at that point. I mean, I made money, but I wasn't, I, I, I don't know how that wasn't obvious, <laughs> but I, I wasn't calling out soul before the drama started. I just shorted it after the, the, uh, basically imminent collapse started. There, there was a little bit of calling out. I, I forgot about this. There was a significant number of people, myself included, who were pointing out that like, if you believed in, let's say you believed in a charismatic, like you believed in CZ, uh, like there's a really obvious play. It's get BNB, like the founding team. I mean, you could think what you want about Binance, but the founding team's never sold any, right? That kind of thing. Um, and they have one token, right? But like FTX Alameda, you'd, like it just changed from month to month. If you were excited about Sam for some reason, or you were a Sam believer, like, did you get FTT? Did you get soul? Did you get like phantom? Did you get Aptos? Did you get Sui? Did you get like, you could just kept moving on from one to another. And so that definitely alerted some people early to the idea that this might not be a very good play. Yeah. And it's just come to my recent attention that now coach is saying that Do Kwan is actually missing. Um, we're hoping to get him here, but you know, reports had him in Dubai. The latest reports had him in Europe. We thought we had a pinpoint on him and Do and go ahead. Sorry. Oh, here he is. Missing or not. He's in the chat. Confirmed <laughs> not missing. Breaking news. Oh, he's actually here. Uh, we'll bring him up as a speaker if he's willing to join. Of course. Um, shit, I had something else I wanted to say, but I can't remember. Doe, uh, we would love to get you on just to talk to people. Uh, you know, the, the big uh, topics have just been, you know, comparing sort of the, the character of SBF and how you compare. Um, I don't know. It, it, here's my thing about SPF. I think he, SPF, SBF, I think at the end of the day, I feel like he was kind of like a fall guy. Like there were so many different threads pulling him in, in different directions. And so, you know, he felt like he was doing what was right by making huge donations and things to like the Democrats or whoever's in control of the American regime. But he, and then on top of this, he's like lending money out to people that like lending user funds out. And I feel like, the craziest thing to me, and I don't mean to get too conspiratorial here, but the craziest thing to me is all of their advertisements for like why you should use FTX were just pictures of, of Sam's face. Like what, like, it's almost like they were setting him up to be like, if this fucking fails, like you're the one on the hook, dude. And why would a picture of Sam's face sell anything to anyone? I mean, the guy was ugly. He barely shaved. His mustache looked like shit. 
Um, I don't know. I just thought it was like super interesting to Seems see. Seems like the fitting face of crypto. Yeah, exactly. But in, in any fitting face in crypto, why would you use that to, to market to people other than like extreme autists, I guess? And, and maybe that was it. Like, hey, let's put this guy up and everybody will trust that he is smarter than you to, to like take control of your money. Um, but to me, you know, it did seem like, hey, let's set this kid up and whether he succeeds in kind of like regulatory capture of the market in the US where, hey, we can control like everything. We've got enough money funneled into regulators to to turn off the spigot to DeFi. Um, or it's a win-win for us because if he fails, then well, it's his fault and actually it's it's crypto's fault. And so we'll just easily kind of pin the blame on on Bitcoin, on DeFi, on all these things. And then it'll be easy for us to like, you know, shut it down via regulation in that respect. So maybe it's a win-win for them. Maybe, maybe at the end of the day, the American regime's smarter than us all. Um, Doe, how are you, sir? Um, pretty good. I'm happy to confirm that I'm not missing. <laughs> Doe Kwan not actually missing. Hold on. Let me, let me get some people up here that are requesting to speak now. I think this actually might confirm that Do Kwan is not Coach Bruce too, which was another huge rumor going around. <laughs> unless he's unless he's doing two devices and that accent. Bruce, can you speak? Yeah, can we confirm you guys aren't the same? Despite all the smoking, Bruce does still possess the ability to speak. Bruce, Bruce, my man, come up. Well, Bruce uh, confirmed spoke earlier with an accent that was a very good reproduction of someplace in the British Isles. I'll try to add him a speaker right now. I think he was a bit busy earlier. Um, I was too. My wife's just finished up with a surgery. Uh, Never mind. So the theory that Doquan, <laughs> the theory that Doquan is Coach Bruce is still on. If Bruce doesn't come up and speak, yeah, it's it's still on. Doe, I want to ask you about um, the the character arc of Arthur Hayes and how you feel you can compare uh, SBF to to him and like what what do you think of arthur and kind of his rebound as to i don't know maybe more of like a positive figure in the space and and what do you think of like sbf in the future and what well, might happen with him? I, i'm really i'm really sorry i just i just wanted to say um Sefi, i hope your wife's doing all right and uh, her surgery went well i'm not qualified to speak on the ftx arthur specifically um i think i i think the situations are a little bit different because whatever arthur did I, I think it boils down to more of like, like in crypto, people care a lot about like whether they make money from something or whether they lose money from something, right? So, uh, and whatever Arthur did, um, you know, BitMEX worked well. I think it still works well. Um, I don't think anybody lost money in a way that is similar to the FTX style from there. Um, so, you know, legal technicalities aside, um, I, I don't think people ever hated him as much. So even when like the the DOJ stuff happened, they were kind of like, okay, yeah, that's kind of funny. But I, I don't recall seeing like a public anger or response that is commensurate with what Sam is seeing now. I, I think people need to, you know, distinguish like... Mm, and, and and like a lot of this is context specific, right? So, um, you know, for Arthur, I, you know, he's obviously very intelligent, super talented, and um, I think on the balance, like despite losing money in two thousand twenty one, which is like kind of sounds ridiculous, but it's kind of 
you know, very difficult to deploy money at scale in crypto, right? Because like if you're running 11 digits and the, like the total amount of liquidity available in crypto is, you know, maybe, you know, like a hundred billion dollars in any given day, you're like 10% of the market, right? So I, I do think that there are diseconomies of scale as you get larger in crypto. Um, but yeah, so I, I think for Arthur, like the main distinction is that he didn't really lose, you know, customer funds. Um, and for Sam, he did. So I think the redemption arc is going to look a little bit different if any were to exist. We talked a lot earlier about how this cycle compares to last cycle. Um, you know, in my opinion, the, the, in 2017, 2018, the only real innovation we saw was the the ability for people to basically trade their Ethereum for shitcoins with like the ICO. So like this fundraising model kind of rose to prominence and you were able to, um, you know, as a project that that maybe had a decent idea or whether you had a, a utilization for your token or not, um, you could quickly and easily raise funds and have a bunch of people that were bought into your project. Um, and then, you know, it all kind of came crashing down in, in 2018. This, this cycle, which attracted a lot more liquidity, and um, I guess I, I would, I would, it's fathomable, a lot more institutions, right? Um, the, the narrative was more about like these DeFi primitives and like lending platforms and, you know, actual tools for, for finance that were built on top of smart contracts as opposed to to people. Um, it's a shame that, you know, it was kind of taken down at the end here. One, you know, with the end of the cycle, I think with like the collapse of FTX and like centralized finances. Um, what, what do you think like for the next cycle? And, and maybe that's not coming anytime soon. Maybe that's in 2023 or 2024. Like, what do you think is going to be the narrative for the next cycle as we kind of move beyond just like these incentivized uh, yield farming opportunities or, or whatever was the shortcomings of this cycle. What do you think is going to be that next narrative? If you, and of course not investment advice, uh, but just curious to, to know your thoughts on that. <laughs> well, if I could predict the answer to that, I'd be the richest man in the world. But, um, um, didn't you used to be right? Not quite. <laughs> not quite. Yeah. Um, well, so I don't know. I, I, I keep, Coming back to um, what what is interesting about crypto is that it allows you know most human activity to happen over like the internet than it does in the physical world, and I think that's you know kind of exciting. So when people hear this for the first time, they think, "Oh, that's like very um, <clears throat> dystopian, and you know involves people like locked up in their rooms and you know not showering for three days and not meeting others." But um, it's it's more of a you know, statement of the existing trend, right? As in, like, uh, a lot of human activity has shifted online, uh, even without crypto, um, over the last 20 years. Now, I think what starts to get interesting is, you know, before, most of the economy was still in the physical world, where you, you had to go to offices, and then for most things, you needed to verify yourself by speaking face-to-face -face with a bank teller or something like that. But I think like the what what's truly interesting about disintermediation is that 
you are able to, you know, work for companies that are not based in where where you might happen to reside, or you might be able to get a job insofar as you build an identity that uh, garners enough trust and a track record behind it, similar to how you build up your LinkedIn resume. So, for example, there's a lot of, you know, pseudonymous alt-like characters with a lot of, you know, credibility uh, in crypto, right? So, for example, like, you know, you know, like crypto Twitter is like full of anons, but like Bantag from uh, Yearn, um, you know, many such characters like um, Septi in this room, uh, for instance, I, I think has built up some street cred. But anyways, I, I think the the great promise for moving sort of the economic activity um, online versus uh, it existing in the real world is that it sort of levels the playing field uh, in terms of the opportunities that you can access, right? So if previously, um, you know, there are inherent biases and um, disparities uh, depending on which country you might happen to be based in. So for instance, like if you're an engineer coming out of Uber, you would usually make, you know, 5x what you would make from, let's say, uh, an engineer coming from Vietnam, for instance, right? So all of that collapses. So if you have an anonymous uh, profile and all of the activity that you're doing simply based on your contributions is online, then in that case, um, like the types of opportunity, economic opportunities that you have access to is no longer determined by your location, by your race, by your gender. And I think that's a great thing. Um, and I think, you know, a second order effect of that is that, um, like the importance of where you might happen to be living also happens to disappear as well. And this indirectly, uh, sort of weakens the power of nation states, because if it's no longer important to, let's say, live in, you know, the UK or the United States, for instance, and you can live wherever you want and have access to the same opportunities, then I think that's a net good for mankind. So one of the things that I really strongly believe in is uniform distribution of talent across geographies, gender. And um, a lot of the people that I've worked with at TFL, I've actually never met them. And their sort of a non-profile on Slack has gotten so familiar to me that I wouldn't even remember their real names. And um, I think sort of moving the economic layer to crypto um, is pretty exciting in doing that. I also think that the types of jobs are going to look different. So um, most jobs were divided into a dichotomy of blue collar jobs where you had to do something with your hands or white collar jobs where you had to do something in the office and interact with other human beings in the service layer. Um, I think there's going to be um, like a lot of interesting jobs that just didn't exist that's, that's going to happen as more activity moves online. So for example, a part of it could be like a project manager that, that sort of curates the to-do list for DAOs um, and, you know, investigates, you know, governance. And so people like Zach XBT is like a great example of this, right? So uh, I think on simple donations alone, he's doing pretty good. I think over time as the industry matures, he's going to make more. But this idea of an on-chain sleuth that is entirely powered by community donations, looking at how funds are moving um, and then calling out sort of the scams and the misdoings in the industry is a net good. But at the same time, that type of profession would never have existed uh, prior to crypto. That's yeah, fascinating. Oh, go ahead, Pete. Sorry. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And uh, we remember you talking a little bit about uh, some thoughts along this line with some projects that 
a TFL even earlier in the year. Um, and maybe you could speak a little bit more to that later on uh, on anything coming up regarding like uh, like fungible developer hours kind of ideas, right? Um, but one of the other things that uh, I remember is that back in like 2017, uh, 2018, there was a there were a bunch of false flags as to like what the future craze would be, obviously because humans are terrible at predicting the future. So uh, STOs was a huge one, right? Security token offerings are going to become massive and T0 and these are the platforms to be and just fell completely flat. Um, too early, perhaps, but you know they, they didn't promise to be the next big wave. And, uh, and then DeFi Summer kind of had a little bit of, of that as well, where like uh, we've seen more modest failures in like FAT protocol thesis and in... Uh, like the idea that you should own all these blue chip DeFi's, where in reality their their token value is withering away as they uh, they just issue rewards in their own token and so on. If you've been holding blue chips for a few years, you're not you're not doing so great right now. Um, and and you called some of this out earlier. I remember uh, earlier in the year where um, you know when asked what you're doing uh, currently, uh, and you talked about the fungible dev hours. You said that DeFi wasn't really doing anything interesting uh, right now, um, that it was just kind of, uh, you know, building derivatives upon derivatives upon derivatives and cards. And uh, so what, what do you think? Here's my question, Neo, uh, because you've shown that uh, insight before. What do you think is something that a lot of people in the industry are excited about right now? Maybe think is the next wave or a next big craze or a next big thing. And you don't see it. You think that it's uh, it's going to end up being a false prediction, kind of like STOs, kind of like uh, at least in the short term, these uh, these DeFi blue chips and so on. Yeah, I mean, so it's not so much that DeFi itself isn't interesting. Uh, it's more that like the marginal effort that is going into DeFi uh, definitely wasn't interesting a couple months ago, right? So um, to tell you one of my like fail stories from investing. Um, I invested in this DEX called DinoSwap, uh, which I don't think is like a big problem to this now because I, I think it's gone. But basically, like the premise of DinoSwap is that it's an AMM that they forked Uniswap and then they would put it on Polygon. And then when they were distributing the tokens, um, they couldn't figure out how to like launch a web app in time. So they um, made token purchasers sign like a like a transaction on Etherscan to claim it, um, and a lot of the people that bought tokens didn't know how to sign transactions because they'd never done it before. So <laughs> they got very angry and stuff like that. But uh, it was kind of crazy because that thing, uh, which I bought, uh, I think at one point like it went up to like several billion dollars in FTV, and then I think it got hacked or something, and then it went to zero immediately after. Um, but you know, essentially, like we we saw like a, a lot of effort going into this as all the ecosystems were growing. There was a natural ecosystem arbitrage and forking something that exists and then launching it somewhere else, or to take something that is highly valuable, adding a nominal feature on top of it, and then saying, "Okay, this is so much better than what came before." So. Um, I, I think DeFi has seen a lot of innovation to the extent that it has come now, but um, it sort of plateaued a little bit in terms of innovation because the incentives were such that you didn't have to be terribly innovative to be able to capture value. 
And generally during the bear market, this disappears. Like accessibility for capital to, to capital for uh, things that are copycats basically disappears. Um, and even if you're doing something really interesting, you know, like whether you get funded or whether you have enough interest in your project is uncertain. So I think that's that's sort of, you know, bear market test is when some of the really interesting projects are are created. Luke Kwan, I'm guessing you're Doe's cousin. You've had your hand raised for a while. Your arm must be tired. Feel free to ask or speak. Yeah. So um hey everyone, Steffi, what's up? Um so my question is uh so I know there was talks, Duquan, uh, between you and uh, Bruce about, you know, a possible alliance after, um, you know, Lunk upgrades their program to parity. Um, do you possibly have any uh, ideas on directions of, of how that alliance would go, um, you know, once it's upgraded? Um, and uh, what's your so, so there's there's that one um, pretty much ideas with the alliance. Um, as well as uh, what's your opinion on the current governance structure now being 100% community driven? Um, if you believe a decentralized management structure would help us grow, um, like, you know, for example, like the holacracy that, that's been discussed within the LUG community. Um, I just want your opinions on it, man. I, I'm not sure which alliance you're referring to, but in, in terms of like how like I personally feel about like Luna Classic is... When Terra first depegged in May, uh, you know, I, I didn't really expect to see, you know, so many people roll up their sleeves um, and take time from their day jobs to be able to work on something that had literally crashed and burned, you know, billions and billions of dollars. So uh, I think the positive thing is that the amount of people that want to do something with the community at zero compensation at great personal sacrifice, because I think anybody that's like contributing to Luna Classic now, uh, they get lots of support, but at the same time, they they get lots of hate and you know threats from warring factions. But I but I think the positive thing is it's it's seen like a lot of a grassroots community movement from truly talented people that I've had the opportunity to talk to. And I think it's very impressive, and it says a lot about um, you know. Uh, the future of crypto and the human condition in general. Now, um, in in terms of like what I want to do, uh, what I, what I want to contribute for like Terra and Luna Classic is right now. Like most people don't realize this, but uh, we still maintain uh, public RPC endpoints, and then we run Station, we run Finder. So most of the you know really core critical infrastructure that Terra Classics users rely on on a day-to-day -day basis to stake their coins, to view governance, to um, to custody their assets, um, are really software that we've created and continue to maintain, right? And uh, in terms of that, like, I'm happy to continue to do so. Um, there's a lot of voices in the Terra Classic community that, that says that we should stop. Um, it's it's kind of hard to do that though because if we shut these services down, I don't think there would be any wallet or a block explorer that people could rely on for anything. Um, to be honest, so we continue to maintain it. We have appetite to continue to maintain it for as long as it's needed. And uh, when the community doesn't want us to, we'll stop. 
And in terms of doing more, we, we don't have any aversion to Luna Classic or Terra Classic. Um, at the end of the day, it's still um, you know, something that uh, we created years ago, continue to have a lot of passion about it. Um, but there needs to be concrete and specific asks from the community that comes in a unified voice um, for us to be able to do something. And then a lot of the requests that I see on Twitter are things like, oh, burn like four trillion Luna or something like that, or make Luna Classic go to a dollar. And uh, those things are just not possible, right? Because we, we, we just don't have the resources to buy four, four trillion you know, uh, Lunsi from the open market. And at a dollar, Lunsi would be at 6.9 trillion United States dollars. To put things in context, this is more than half of the European Union's GDP. Um, and it's, I think at this point, close to 8x, the combined market cap of all crypto. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we remain supportive. And, you know, in terms of, the stuff that we launch will always keep the Luna Classic community in mind for, you know, collaborations or supporting them with our infrastructure. But there needs to be unified voice in terms of the proposals that actually make sense to move the chain forward. You've I recently, got, exp- you've recently a lot of speakers. Sorry, Pete. <laughs> I know we got a lot of speakers uh, waiting to talk, so uh, we want to get to you guys. Sorry, I'm not ignoring you. Um, Doe, if you could just really quickly, because on Wednesday of last week, uh, six days ago, uh, you guys released an audit just talking about the the funds you spent to to defend the peg back in the day of May. Um, can you just talk about that just very briefly? I mean, how much money did you guys spend to actually defend the UST peg to try and keep it out at all? Yeah, so... Okay, so before that, as like a background context, when the DPEG happened, there there were a lot of accusations fully floating in the air, right? And, um, you know, like many were kind of difficult to respond to. Like for one thing, there were so many of them that it, it wasn't possible to respond to them all. And then some of them were just like, like just, just straight up ridiculous, right? So for instance, like... Um, I think there was a number of transactions involving Lunsi DAO where they were taking like Luna staking rewards and like selling it to buy back Lunsi and like burn it or something like that. And then Coindesk, um, I think Korea like ran an article saying that, you know, all those wallets are mine. And that I was like dumping Luna and then buying Lunsi and then sending them to like a private secret wallet or something like that. So, I mean, like in sort of like the universe of all the accusations that came out, we just had to be selective in terms of what we could spend our remaining manpower because uh, we, we had a lot of stuff to do, right? So we needed to, um, you know, think about like building infrastructure for the new chain uh, to restructure TFL uh, so that the company can be effective in, you know, serving one or both of these ecosystems going forward. Uh, and at the same time, responding to, um, and, and clarifying things in the public sphere. Uh, what we did think was important was how we choose to spend the, uh, and a sort of like a comprehensive audit in how we spend to, choose, uh, to spend the 
the Bitcoin and other resources that were available to the Luna Foundation Guard. So for context for people that weren't following the story closely, earlier this year, um, I created Luna Foundation Guard as a way to build exogenous collateral, uh, pri primarily denominated in Bitcoin, that could be used as a secondary um, swap mechanism, uh, secondary collateral uh, for UST in addition to Luna. So we um, raised about, so we, we, we essentially raised $2 billion over the course of a month uh, to bootstrap Luna Foundation Guard. So it initially started with, uh, I think, uh, combined close to $4 billion donation from TFL, which is an entity that has no external investors and is almost wholly owned by me. Um, so $4 billion into Luna Foundation Guard, and then we did an external sale uh, to various different entities. Um, so the first chunk being about a billion dollars to, you know, led by Jump Trading, 3AC, and uh, some other entities. And then the second clip uh, denominated in UST, uh, $1 billion as a sale to Genesis Trade. Now, uh, so combined, like before the DPEG happened, this left us with, um, you know, maybe three and a half billion dollars worth of Bitcoin that we had purchased uh, in the name of LFG with the goal that this Bitcoin would be put into an on-chain swap pool against whom, against which UST could be swapped. Similar to how like the main stability mechanism in Terra was that you could swap UST to Luna at par in order to keep the stablecoin at parity with the US dollar. Now, um, you know, like the, you know, when the DPEG happened, um, we hadn't completed building that on-chain reserve mechanism yet. Um, so we had a choice of whether to not do anything or to spend LFG's resources to um, you know, defend UST as much as possible. And we took the latter choice in order to make sure that people didn't have to suffer through a DPEG event. We eventually failed, but when we did, there was a lot of accusations as to whether, you know, that Bitcoin was embezzled or, um, you know, was used to bail out insiders, was otherwise, you know, per, uh, misappropriated. So we commissioned um, a you know, technical analysis firm called JS Held. Uh, we confirmed this audit report with the second entity that really, um, so essentially like it shows that like out of all the money that was in LFG, we spent all of it to buy back UST. And we felt like that part was important because whereas we're not in denial that UST didn't work, right? And the stablecoin depegged, but uh, we, we, there, there was no fraud or uh, impropriety involved in that process. For anyone interested, I've just pinned that audit. Doa tweets out a link to the audit by JS Held. Again, as an independent auditing group, uh, you had a, a second audit firm uh, confirm it. And then also, uh, you know, as usual, as would be expected, the compensation wasn't contingent on the results. Um, so you can go ahead and check that out. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, it's like, uh, I don't know, a dozen pages, easy to scan through, uh, and it's linked right here. 
Um, I wanted to hop back and give you a little bit of opportunity before we uh, take some more questions. So uh, you mentioned willingness to support Terra Classic, but uh, that expands recently in your recent messaging from TFL. I don't know if there's been an official announcement, um, but you've definitely spoken about it in public spheres um, regarding supporting other Cosmos chains in general, both chains that spin up with the help of of the you know, TFL's new tooling and also um, you know, current existing chains with things like station support, potentially Mantleman, RPC support, and so on. Can you tell us a little bit about that and about the response you've received so far from other Cosmos chains? Yeah, so I, I, I don't know if like the stuff that we're working on is like Terra-specific, but ultimately, um, you know, while I was working on Terra, um, I, I believed in two things, right? So number one was that a decentralized economy needs decentralized money, and that gave birth to UST. And the second belief was that the world would have, uh, like Web3 would run on a growing number of blockchains. Um, and like in my mind, why that is the case is like pretty straightforward. So, um, you know, there's this ongoing debate as to whether, you know, between like maximalism and pluralism, uh, in terms of whether like all the computation is going to run on a single shard or just a handful of shards. And that's the idea that, you know, everything would essentially settle to something like Ethereum or Solana or, um, you know, whichever chain corresponds to your bags. And then the second idea is that there's going to be a lot of chains. And this is the belief that uh, is inherent to the, the Cosmos community as well as several others. But like if you boil down to like the basic mechanics of it, um, if you look at any proof-of-stake blockchain, and proof-of-stake blockchains are basically a primary flavor by which smart contract platforms run these days, um, it's really um, like a proof-of-stake blockchain is only possible if uh, the staking asset can be priced. And what it means for the staking asset to be pr to be priced is that it needs to be valuable and it needs to correspond to Redeem, uh, you know, like stable redeemability in some commodity. And that commodity in crypto happens to be block space. So you notice this with uh, most blockchains where with the passage of time, the asset either goes to zero uh, or um, like the pricing of block space stops dropping. So it becomes stable over time. So in order for something to be effectively priced, it just happens so that uh, there needs to be predictable scarcity and how that asset corresponds to uh, the block space that's available on the chain. And if that's the case, if you have finite or at least predictably finite uh, block space, um, you know, matched with growing demand from Web3, then it stands to reason there needs to be new blockchains that are created. So that, that's basically, you know, the Cosmos thesis. And it's something that, um, I, I think it's going to pan out over the next few years. And I, and I don't think like layer twos change this dynamic, right? Because layer twos could write data and look at the state machine of a different blockchain as the final arbiter, but it doesn't, doesn't change the fact that it still creates new block space. So there's new state machines that are created. So in, in order to do this, I started to think about like, um, what is, so what, what stops people from launching blockchains right now in order to create apps, or Web3 apps, and um, instead of like launching things on a smart contract. 
And I think uh, the primary blocker is that it's, it costs a lot more time and resources to be able to do that uh, versus just like whipping up a smart contract and launching a front end. Um, and essentially, like some of the things that we're working on, like for example, Interchain Station and Feather, just make it really easy for people to launch uh, you know, uh, their own blockchains which, just by running a script. So the entry cost of launching your own chain is commensurate with launching a smart contract. And then Interchain Station and you know, other ecosystem tools are also pretty great because the way that Feather works is that it doesn't just automate the chain launch, it hooks up to a number of different service providers so that they launch automatically um, when your chain goes live. So you, um, you get rid of this uh, sort of like early mover effect in terms of ecosystem tooling that more mature chains have because you have a block explorer, you have a station with a very, uh, you have a wallet with a very large install base. You have a number of you know, developer tools like um, Terrarium and Terrain uh, for you to be able to write smart contracts on that chain. You have a number, uh, you have access to a number of different SDKs like, well, it used to be called Terra.js. Um, now we're rebranding to Feather.js. Um, and you know, block explorers, things like CoinHall are going to come online. And then RPC servers against which apps that are building on your chain can connect to um, to offer global availability and um, and access to like enterprise services. So, yeah, I mean, so the goal is that to make it really easy for people to launch chains using Feather, uh, for um, you to be able to use Station to access web apps or uh, different types of applications from a single wallet interface, which is Station, um, and then for you know, blockchains to find it easier for their chain, uh, like the assets on their chain to be economically viable by using Alliance to connect to, you know, staking reward cash flows from different chains with assets that are more highly valued, less volatile, and has more users. Uh, Doe, I know it's it's getting close to lunchtime now in, uh, in, in um, sorry, in California, which is where you've been for a while. Sorry. Didn't mean to dox your location. Um, if you have time before maybe your uh, your Kiboki warms up in the microwave, could, are you willing to answer just a couple questions from the people in the audience? Sure. Cool. Uh, Bull BNB, let's get you going. You've been waiting for a while. Uh, I do. First of all, it's the first time I'm getting a chance to talk to you. So I'm, I'm just going to keep it real uh, short, real quick. I've got two questions from you, and it's not tech related. It's uh, human psychology. I really want to know how did you manage to deal with all this bullshit, which was uh, people were like, you know, talking about you, all the bad stuff, all the negativity since May till date. You know, what keeps you going? You know, what what drives you? That's one question. Second question I want to know is that. Um, uh, what was it? Sorry. Um, given the fact that if you go back in time, let's say, I mean, April, you go back in time, some sort of a time machine or something, what would you do differently? I mean, that's it. These are the two things I want to know. Yeah. So, um, you know, answering your first question, um, it's, uh, 
I mean, obviously, like in the bull market, things are better, but at the same time, it's 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 worse in a lot of different ways, right? So, um, like for example, in terms of like personal security threat, it's not necessarily better, um, you know, during the bull market because, I mean, like a lot of people try to rob you, right, or like pretend they've kidnapped your family and things like that, and that was definitely much worse during the bull market because people assumed that I had more money, right? Um, so, you know, the first couple of times that it happens, it's really jarring, but over time, like, and I've been doing this for a while, so five years or so, or maybe six, um, it, it, it kind of desensitizes you and makes you more stress tolerant. So, uh, in terms of the stuff that I'm like seeing in public spheres, like, you know, mainstream media or Twitter, um, I mean, it's not great, but at the end of the day. Um, you gotta sort of view things over a longer arc, right? So, um, like, if I was stressing out and was freaking out over like every threat that I read on Twitter or like people saying go to jail or something like that, then in that case, it, I don't think it would have been possible to do this as long as I have done in the first place. Um, so I'm okay, right? Um, and uh, if you, you know, like for for people that uh, you know post things on Twitter and things like that, uh, you know, go ahead. It's it's okay. I can take it. Um, but you know, I, I I think you know, well, as a secondary line of defense, things that are helpful is you know, family's great. Um, friends have been really helpful and supportive. And um, most importantly, like the stuff that I'm working on now is pretty interesting to me. So um, it's kind of like a breath of fresh air in some sense, because in the Terra one days, if you look at my calendar, it was like fully booked from like, you know, 7.30, 8 a.m. Um, in like 15 minute increments all the way up to midnight. Um, so I was like stuck in these like podcasts and like, um, you know, bullshit calls that didn't really have a really important strategic outcome. Whereas now, like my calendar is much, much more free. So that it's actually given me a lot more time to think about and work on projects that I like instead of something that's just been put on my calendar like three weeks ago. So I think it's about trade-offs. And at the end of the day, like the only thing that you can control is the things in your mind, right? It's not, it's not the things that happen to you. So, um, you know, from that standpoint, I am as grateful as I am for, uh, as I am, you know, uh, upset about the things that have happened. In terms of the things that I would do differently, um, oh gosh. Well, there's several different things, but from like the mechanism side, I think we should have started to build um, exogenous collateral uh, a lot earlier. And then one of the things that we've we had been, you know, researching some time on is to. Um, to find a way uh, whereby we could, you know, hedge the volatility of, you know, the underlying collateral in, you know, Luna, Bitcoin, Avalanche, and several different assets with a uh, different, uh, you know, using like an on-chain mechanism where you would have sort of essentially like a synthetic Bitcoin short position, right? So those things were in fairly early stages when the DPEG happened. But uh, I think I would have spent a lot more time in thinking about how 
you could have decentralized collateral, but at the same time, you could largely be hedged through most uh, market fluctuations. And of course, like starting to build that exogenous reserve a lot earlier. All right. <clears throat> Up next, uh, we've got Dallas, and then I'm going to go to Ann, and then Mr. Mohawk in that order. Yeah, thanks for inviting me up, guys. And uh, Joe, nice to nice to talk to you. So I think it's my first time chatting with you. Um, got a lot of questions about pasta, but I'd rather keep it, you know, somewhat forward looking. Um, you mentioned that you, you know, are excited about the stuff that you're working on. Um, is there anything with that that you can share? And and you know, is any of that like stablecoin related? Is there anything you know uh, Bitcoin related that you're excited about that you think you could add innovation on? I would love to know a bit more about like where your focus is at and what you find exciting at the moment. Yeah, so um, in terms of like the current things that I'm working on, um, I think there's like a sort of a casual post that I did in Tara's research forum. Um, I think maybe like uh, Pete could share a link to that like after we're done with those spaces. Um, but it's basically like a set of tools that makes it easy for um, you, you know, for developers to launch blockchains and embedded in that for blockchains to form alliances with each other uh, by sharing staking rewards with one another. So I, I'm, I'm mainly interested in this as like a, from a personal curiosity standpoint, like I don't, I don't really want to speculate uh, in terms of, you know, what things this would enable in the future or things like that. Um, this is kind of like a research area that I've been excited for a while. So I'm going to refrain a little bit and see these things in production. And let's see if we traction before I talk about it more. And fire away. Uh, hello. Thank you for bringing me up. Um, hello, Mr. Dokwon. Um, I've got a question about... Um, Sorry for my English, I'm from Holland. Um, question about uh, decentralized um, space. Actually, um, in my opinion, doesn't work uh, at the moment in the Luna Classic community. Um, how do you think um, using a business model um, in a centra centralized um space so like with uh, a ceo a cto a cfo um to help to could be held accountable for things happening and things at um a project and uh, a lot of people at the Luna Classic community like to work together with Luna 2.0 and I think vice versa um, how do you see that happen in the future? Mm -hmm. So that's a great question, Anne. So I actually think the like the very strong differences in opinion that you can see on Luna Classic is a feature, not a bug, right? Um, I think the greatest great, greatest asset that the that the Classic community has going right now is this very large and rabid community, right? And uh, most blockchains don't have this. And I can think of many different chains that would kill to possess, to, to have access to such a community and to have so many people that are interested in it. The differences in opinion arise precisely because it's decentralized, but it also indicates um, you, you know, a, a very strong degree of attention in terms of the things that can be done. Now, I think the issue is um, like 
the, the way that these discussions can come to a close has not been systematized, right? In the sense that like the community is still um, sort of finding its way after the, the crisis. And if you think about it, it's only been about six months after all of this happened. Um, and unfortunately, like to, for, for something that didn't really have any of those systems to come up with a solution, it's just gonna take some time. Now, as to whether it would be better to have like a CEO or a CTO, I, I absolutely do not agree. I think it's going to be fundamentally worse um, because, you know, I, I, I think if you just have like a community that is being spoon fed things by um, a centralized group, then I, I, I think it takes away the best thing that exists about the classic community today, uh, which is a lot of people that are opinionated and have different ideas about what's best for the ecosystem's, uh, ecosystem's future. Now, um, I think a lot of these problems are short-term, right? Because the reason why there's lots of differences in opinions is because like, most of the discussions involve what to do with the layer one or what changes to make or how to distribute community funds. But uh, if you really think about it, like the benefit of Luna Classic isn't the you know, the three to $4 million that are locked in the multi-sig or the access to the community pool. So I think as more developers start to realize that, then these discussions become moot because if you just have people that are just randomly building things to get access to this community, instead of, um, you know, trying to find ways to spend like what is honestly like quite a small part of capital, then I think that's how the community moves forward. Um, Having said that, I think uh, decentralized governance has led to some um, suboptimal decisions. So, for example, like the 1.2% on-chain tax, um, which I, I, I don't know the origins of how that came about, but that was very obviously going to kill like the residual, you know, um, decentralized apps that were left on Terra Classic, as well as make it difficult to onboard. Uh, a lot of users in centralized exchanges like Binance and then bring them back on chain, which you absolutely need in order to uh, get a large base of users that are willing to try out new apps that might otherwise have launched. So it's going to be a difficult and messy process, but uh, I think it's better decentralized than having a centralized committee of... Mr. Mohawk, Deebs, Teddy, Bikram, and then uh, Doze. No, no, just one, just one, just one. Just one, all right. Mr. Mohawk, and then Doe's bulgogi is getting cold in the microwave. Appreciate it. Uh, Doe, you kind of answered this in a sense more relating to uh, Luna and Luna Classic, but earlier before you joined, one of the biggest things that we discussed was uh, regulations after uh, this whole FTX uh, debacle. So I wanted to get your thoughts on regulation and where it would best suit the like the entire web3 community would that be a, a source of like self-imposed regulation would it be government uh intervention what what are your thoughts on you know things protecting retail moving forward mm. uh so i mean i i think the split is pretty clear so if you are centralized then you should be regulated as a centralized financial player, right? And if you're decentralized, then in that case, it should be beyond regulation because the idea of having 
you know, 200 countries, the ability to regulate you just because anyone can have access just uh, really doesn't make sense. And if you boil down to like the basics of how regulation works is like, I mean, it's kind of difficult, right? Because regulators need to draw a line. Uh, and obviously like things like Bitcoin and Ethereum are working well, but it's beyond their ability, nor would it be politically prudent to try to go after Satoshi, for instance, or to go after Ethereum, right? So uh, from that standpoint, I, I, I think like the... I mean, the devil's in the details, but the difficult question is like, what is centralized and what is decentralized? And um, I think there's a number of different ways that you can draw this, this distinction. So for instance, like um, in terms of deciding whether something is truly decentralized, um, I think you can look at like a number of different factors, right? So for instance, like um, how much of the governance power is being controlled um, by the team, for instance? Are there any special access keys that uh, some people have that is not determined by governance that other people might have? Like, how are the funds controlled and decided, right? Um, and I think how each country comes to the definition of decentralized is going to be different, but it's a definition that I think many regulators are pondering. And I think at the end- Hey, Doquan, I got a quick follow-up. It's just a yes or a no um, question kind of follow-up there. Um, if you and uh, SBF ended up in the same cell, would you guys share a bottom bunk or would you be on top, him on the bottom? Just curious. Unreal, man. <laughs> uh, nice question, to, uh, Teddy. Yeah. Um, no, well, no, no. Well, uh, so <laughs> I. Jesus. Well, just, just to entertain this like sci fi scenario. Um, uh, from what I can tell, both of us have become quite rotund, so I don't think we'll be sharing a bunk. Is that helpful? That's great. Okay, perfect. Uh, but no, Doe, thank you for uh, you know the the at least the attempt of uh, answering my question before Teddy hopped up. Um, but yeah, it's a it's an interesting concept, and I I think it's going to be interesting who who among us on the web three side is going to step into that role and how they um how they capture something that that fits a very very large mold that's going to be a, a internationally recognized process um but yeah you bring up great points about you know international entities getting involved in what their definitions are um end of the day so again thank you very much all right, sounds good. I, I hopped in as a joke, but it turned out to be long. But, um, you know, thanks for having me, and I'm going to bounce. Bye, guys. Cheers. See you, Doe. Thanks, thanks for joining us. Um, his bulgogi is probably cold now, <laughs> but it's all good. Hey, that was, uh, I mean, <laughs> we started the space as a joke, and Doe joined, and uh, a lot of insightful chat, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Pete, what was your... What was one of your biggest takeaways from anything that Doe discussed? Yeah, agreed. I didn't get to answer. I didn't get to hop in and answer, ask any hard questions. <laughs> like, uh, well, what's an example? What's an example of a question, a hard question you would have asked? Uh, we probably shouldn't get into it right now. It's just, <laughs> it's just too long to think. I'll, I'll arrange something else with Doe uh, later. We'll do something really more hardcore. <laughs> But um, yeah, the uh, the I, I think he he was a good sport. Like he had, he was having a good time. 
I think that's cool. Um, it, uh, um, I, I think a lot of people are confused with all the different terminology going on. Like there's the Alliance module, which is a very specific thing. Uh, and then like there's people confusing that with like an alliance between Luna Classic and Luna. Um, I think like all the terminology is getting all like, uh, I don't know, run into a blender and people are confused about what's what's actually happening. But yeah, I think uh, some of the discussions about governance are super important, like Anne asked and others have asked, like the, the Luna Classic com community in particular is really like scratching their head about governance, as is most of crypto. Um, and most of the discussion tends to be who controls what, but actually very little discussion about how to make uh, like blockchain governance different right. than centralized governance. People tend to want to yeah. gravitate back towards centralized governance every time, which is, I think, the most obvious. Like, uh, you sure, All right. If you have a question for Doe, Sefi's now here on behalf of Doe answering. He's got a direct line to Doe while Doe eats his bulgogi. So feel free to ask Sefi the question. Uh, we'll start with Jonas, since you've already unmuted yourself. <laughs> Deebs or Don. All right, Deebs. Yeah, hey, everyone. Thanks for inviting me up. Um, so I guess this is, yeah, this is directed at Sefi now. So, um, yeah, the question I had was, I noticed that that Doquan retweeted this, and it was um, Jose from Delphi Labs, kind of this concept of, free market matching um and i and i thought it was interesting um because especially when you brought up this this idea of you know this contrast between centralized and decentralized governance and it seems like you know maybe terra is going in this direction with alliance and maybe this concept of free market matching um a more decentralized approach to how we onboard and incentivize developers so i was just curious what your thoughts were like takeaways from it yeah, if you, like if people haven't found, seen Jose's work, um, I don't know, maybe you could post it up top here in a bit. But um, it's a very similar uh, discussion to what Doe is talking about, connecting um, developer labor markets to directly to people so that if you are looking for, you know, a specific job to get done, you could post it and, um, you know, talk about how much money you're willing to pay. And then a developer can decide to take that position. And then there's like automated systems to handle things like uh, payroll and whatnot. So let's say, for example, you want um, me to, um, you know, produce some sort of software. I show up and say, hey, I'm willing to create, you know, do this for you. And you tell me, okay, I'm willing to pay you a million bucks uh, in four increments of $250,000 or something like that. And um, with each, you know, and, you know, you have a roadmap of different features that have to be completed in order to secure that money but it's done on chain so that um you can you can take care of things like um yeah just development but also just be able to do this with uh, on-chain governance um so that you don't have to have any as many backdoor meetings or whatever um so yeah just moving more and more things on chain uh very few people have like really really worked on those types of projects and i think a lot of the tech that will be needed for that will actually be built with GameFi or gaming related applications and then you'll be able to easily port that over to um to to some of the descriptions like that jose gave and doing it for labor all right according to coach uh doquan will be back in 15 minutes so 
uh, we'll continue asking questions to the crowd that they can, uh, Sefi can dictate to Doquan. Don Vito, you have your hand up. What's your question? Please, brevity in your question and answers. Hey, uh, Sefi. So, um, do you think that Doquan is a Joe? That's all I want to know. Is he a what? I missed that. Is is he a Joe? A Joe. Okay. I was I was asked. I thought you were asking if he was like a South Korean Jew. I was like, I don't know about that. Well, um, no, no, no. A Joe. Yeah, a Joe. Um, we'll have to get him a Joe NFT and uh, see if we can make him one. I don't think he is so far. Although I think he got the Joe um, Hero NFT, right? Like he had a special customized one made for him. So let's, we'll see what he says. Thanks, Safi. Appreciate you, man. All right. Thank you, Don. Uh, doctor. Yeah, I was, I was just uh, waiting for Dokwon to come. Uh, I had some questions uh, uh, for him. So I had put my hand in them. Okay, so well, just now you said he's... Safi. So do you have questions yeah. for Safi or no? No, I, not, at, not like, like particularly only to Dokwon. Like... Uh, all right. Up next, we have uh, Mutas, Jonas, or Bikram. You've all had your fucking. And, and no, I'm not going to tell you where Doe is hidden. We we have him secure. Don't worry about it. You hear that, Teddy? And don't. Whoever's up that wants to ask a question to Sefi, who will dictate the question to Doe, please fire away. Ears. Oh, yeah. Hey, guys. Um, I know this. Uh, first of all, I just want to say. I think it's really unfair to to, to uh, bait people into thinking Do Kwan is joining this space. Uh, I've just joined, and this is the normal playbook from you guys. Just pretend Do Kwan's going to join. Uh, I can't believe you're running this, and so many people have fallen for it. First of all, uh, second, my question for Do, if he ever joins, which we know he won't, uh, what is his favorite breakfast cereal, and can I ship him some in the post? What's his PO box? Yeah, I'll get you, I'll get you an address. You can send it to me, and then I'll send it to him. It's all good. Um, uh, Cocoa Puffs, the chocolate ones. Wolfgang, speak. Hey, ears. Uh, it says come back in fifteen minutes, bud. Just saying. But hey, Sefi, uh, I just wanted to. Uh, you should tell Dewan that there's people in the community that you know have pride in the community. So we'll be here. I don't know if you guys, if everyone's aware that, like, I don't know everyone's motivations. I don't know everything everyone is thinking, obviously, but Doe personally called, like, people 24-7 after the collapse for about a week. Um, Evan, I think you got the call on, what, like, Tuesday, Thursday or something? I got it Saturday. And talked for, like, half an hour to an hour about, like, and I don't want to reveal too much, but, like, you know, uh, how are you doing? Hello. Uh, yeah, I would like. To- well, so much for that. Um, how, how are you doing? Uh, what uh, what what are you doing now? Like, what should I have done? What do you think should happen? What do you think I should do? Stuff like that. Um, and it's just, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It was that that kind of tipped me towards the thought that that he's you know being genuine. Uh, it's just that just reaching out like for many hours that week to community members that he knew and if you're not one of those and you thought you should have been well i mean don't don't think too hard about it he had a lot of people he reached out to but i know some of the people up here 
that uh, I see as listeners and speakers, you also would have called you probably uh, and given you the same, like, asked you the same questions. And he, he thought through everything, every answer before like responding, he was uh, absorbing it all. Um, and like, there were things I told him that were like, you know, you shouldn't come to the U S right now kind of stuff. But then there was, there was like a final remark. Like, I think, I think, uh, you know, you'll do something, something great again. Um, and I don't know if this is the things he's working on now are it or not, but, uh, I don't think I'd count him out just yet. All right. Milk 89. Yeah, just a quick one from me, guys. I joined the space just as um, Doe was probably answering a question around market cap and price points of Luna Classic. I think the $1 thing was being thrown around again. Would you mind just recapping what was said? What did he say about that in terms of price increases, market cap, and things like that? Can somebody just recap that for me quickly, please? I believe yeah, he I could... said if Luna Classic went to a dollar, it would reach a $7 trillion market cap, which is more than the GDP of of europe it was more than more than half the gdp of europe and something like eight times the crypto market cap but it was actually like literally in the context what about the uh burns and things like that was that not so taken into account when he said that so one of those main comments we didn't think of the burns guys wait a minute it is going to a dollar (laughs) one of those main comments about the transaction tax was that like suddenly uh, you kill all the dApps on the chain because people won't withdraw off to the dApps and so on, other reasons. Um, so I'm not sure he's particularly enthusiastic about that. But he was enthusiastic about continuing to support Terra Classic with all the tools it needs for as long as it needs them or as long as it wants them. Um, other than that, there wasn't much chat about the burn. Yeah, any any credible burn mechanism has to be tied to revenue in the ecosystem. So for example, if Apple buys back its stock using revenue from selling iPhones or using from profit from selling iPhones, that's very different than simply just burning stock, which doesn't do anything. Um, so yeah, you, uh, what, what Doe said also is like, <laughs> he doesn't personally have trillions of dollars to buy back, um, uh, you know, trillions of Luna <laughs> tokens to make them a dollar. Uh, so therefore, uh, yeah, the, you're, you're not going to get to a dollar. It's not sensible. <laughs> and uh, that's all he said. Cristiano. Hello, guys. Um, I didn't got the answer from the no about the DPEG. Uh, was asked. Wait, to who? From who? Oh, I don't remember who asked it, but once he was online, uh, how did they do to 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 manage to put the money to not DPEG the USD? When who was online? Who are you talking about? I don't know. Doe, he's got to be. You don't um, know? You don't know yeah, who? I don't know. They do know. Yeah. This is quite a scammer. Sorry. But um, you do know I, or you don't know? They do know. I don't know how to, to spell his name. This uh, Terra Luna mate. His he, name's spelled in the title. Do you know how to say his name? Or you do uh, know? You do know or you don't know? <laughs> I don't do know. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, uh, the answer was not quite clear for me when was asked uh, how much money, how much, how many bitcoins did they use it to to save UST? And I would appreciate if he comes back online, what I don't expect actually, 
It's okay. Um, you can look at. I if just can, tweeted. If you, can, if you can ask again, how did they? Um, how did they try to save USD? I just posted they, the tweet of the audit report, which is a third-party audit that they did with a couple auditors. Um, this one is JS held. Uh, I believe it's US based, and you can go there and find the PDF that describes not only the activity that was done, uh, but also like the tweets that they were tweeting at that time and how close they were to what was actually being done. Uh, so go yeah. ahead and check that report out. Yeah, the it's tweets, fun. I read them all of the tweets of uh, do know or do don't know. And uh, it was just like, uh, yeah, unbelievable what happened to Terra Luna, you know? And I want to know what they did with their Bitcoins because they were telling every week, oh, we bought so many Bitcoins this week. And next week we tell again, oh, we buy another bunch of Bitcoin. And then they buy another bunch of Bitcoin, but they cannot stabilize a coin. And they wreck think, the whole market. I think there's some misunderstanding here. Um, for starters, like it wasn't community funds that uh, the LFG Foundation, uh, Bitcoin and such came from. That was uh, private funds, number one. So those are not, there was no obligation to create LFG in the first place. So there was no guarantee that it was going to be able to protect anything. So that's number one. The second thing is um, uh, the amount of assets needed to secure the peg was probably closer to 10 to $15 billion. So they were working on developing a program to get there and the DPEG happened before that could actually occur. So the, the fact that it failed is not entirely unsurprising. Uh, it was the concession that basically a DPEG could occur which is why LFG was fat formed in the first place. And, um, you know, the, the, they were un undergoing the process of not only building that, but also building systems to automate pegging mechanisms using exogenous collateral. And that just couldn't be deployed in a timely manner to prevent the DPEG. Um, another major reason why the DPEG occurred actually was the inability of centralized exchanges like Binance, even though they advertised uh, a stablecoin, they did not provide uh, remittance one-to-one -one with the dollar. So if anything, um, instead of labeling an experimental stablecoin, they batched it in with their regular stablecoins and people use them as such. Um, so really the exchanges are just as much to blame if anyone wants to blame somebody for not providing one-to-one -one remittance, um, which, uh, which uh, additionally um, contributed to sort of DPEG activities besides the fact that those exact same exchanges provided the ability to short Luna or, or USD for that matter simultaneously. Um, there is also some data going back. Um, the folks from Huobi, the exchange, one of the uh, co-founders had, you know, looked at uh, what had happened and believes that actually FTX was partly to blame. Uh, Alameda FTX was partly to blame for the actual DPEG and that they use it to their own advantage. So just chalk one more up for Sam um, for actually um, being one of the instigators of the DPEG itself, which is interesting. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, Sefi. We're getting news now from Coach, who at first we thought couldn't get Doquan to speak. Uh, and then he did that. He's going to get Elon now. I don't know how much of a joke that is, but. 
we thought him getting dough was a joke and then he actually pulled through and got him. Um, he just put me in a group with some guy on telegram that I don't know, I guess is Elon. Um, and he said, he'll be here in about seven minutes. So, uh, stay tuned. If you want to talk to Elon Musk, uh, the CEO and owner of Twitter, uh, go cup, you have your hand up. What's up everybody. How's it going? Um, I just have like, uh, two questions to be honest. One is the CFI and, uh, one, if, if it could go forward to Doc one. Um, first, the CFI is uh, a question about how is your relationship in in comas with uh, the terror rebels? Uh, are uh, do you? And one personal question is: Do you see a future about the Luna Classic chain? And uh, uh, the question to be forward to Doc one if is this possible? Um, since he's the biological father of the Luna Classic chain, and we are the community, is the yeah, uh, it's the, the word is not coming to be honest. Um, uh, is there any possibility that he could counsel and probably give some advice or even assist at the slightest? And that's it. That's all to be honest. Yeah. Well, from what uh, what Doe has said publicly he'll be willing to provide any assistance that the terror rebels folks want i've spoken to people from terror rebels i've spoken to people from different parts of the cosmos as far as like assisting and people have been helping um spoken to like people from tfl and so everyone's kind of working together helping each other trying to um benefit everyone else i don't see any kind of really antagonistic behavior going on in the background i have no direct relationship to anybody uh, like think of me as kind of an observer or something. Um, and so that looks pretty positive. As far as your question about, is there some redeeming quality to the Luna classic chain? I would say the most obvious redeeming quality is the level of, uh, decentralization that has occurred as a result of this destructive event. Uh, the decentralization, not only in the token distribution of the Luna classic coin, but also in the, um, in the, uh, sort of leadership as well as the validator distribution. So it's interestingly among the more decentralized chains now in 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 the cryptoverse or whatever. Um, it's up to the community to sort out how they're going to utilize that um, and not fuck it up. Quite frankly, <laughs> like it's in the hands of the community to figure out how to make it great. Um, so I think uh, it depends on you as an individual how much work you're willing to put in. I think if you expect other people to do the work for you, then um, you know expect pain <laughs> but uh if you like but as far as uh yeah forget about price action or whatever um prices go up and down things pump they dump whatever um the long-term future is entirely based on uh, the amount of work you're going to put into it ct news you can't use fire hey. away hey guys the space is uh, great it's much better than a mario space um falling for the ice bag scam is pretty good i don't know if you guys saw that but um really quick um, can someone here possibly ask Doe a question um, in regards to IBC osmosis zone? Um, you know, a lot of us are believers in Doe, Terra, and we were using osmosis um, for most of our assets. And I think we're kind of cut off. And I've seen a lot of back and forth um, between devs, um, you know, and everyone's kind of like, it's like, that, it's like that Spider-Man meme where everyone's just pointing at each other. And that's that's fine. But I really think there's a way to move forward. And if maybe someone could just get some clarity um, from Doe's perspective, 
and maybe ask Doe if there was a way to kind of, um, you know, like divorced parents try to figure out how to help the community kids, you know. Are, um, are you talking about, are you talking about just simply reconnecting um, well, well, osmosis to an eclectic? Yeah. yeah, is that something in progress? I, I just, I, I see, yeah, you know. it's being worked on as we speak. Okay, yep. awesome, it's, cool, cool, cool. In That's fact, uh, the osmosis side is basically fixed from what I understand from Notional and from, okay. uh, from, from what I've heard from Sunny Agarwal. Uh, the okay. the Terra Rebels are working on the uh, Luna Classic side, but it, it's like a very surgical thing. It's kind of complicated, and yeah, um, totally. they're working on fixing that. Yeah, it, but it's awesome. very much in the works. That's yes. that's huge, man. I, I haven't seen any clarity, and I try to track this shit twenty four seven. So thank you, dude. I appreciate it. I'll get off now. Dallas, my man, welcome back to the stage. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, obviously, I don't want to upset anybody, but guys, if we do more Luna Classic talk, my head's going to explode. Um, most people are buying Luna Classic because they think it's going to a dollar, and it's not. And as soon as the big market makers want to stop playing the game, then Zerug will pull out from under. So be careful uh, if you are holding a lot of Luna Classic. But um, so we're we're open ended on topics. Huh? Hopefully, Elon does come in. I got a lot of questions for Elon and ideas on uh, some stuff that they can do at Twitter um but what uh what are you what about you guys what it beat pantera what are you what are you fellas excited about right now uh i'm excited about making the user experience for non-custodial asset management better which is a very long-winded and boring way to say whenever you log in to deal with your crypto and all your bags you don't have to worry about some sniveling little weasel like sam bagman fried stealing your money um you can just own your money and you can interact with on-chain protocols and you never have to actually deposit and lose uh, vision or lose insight into where those funds are actually moving around. Yeah, there's a little bit of a chat right now. Like, um, you know, after FTX, people are like, well, we can't hold our crypto with these centralized entities because they'll spend it all and invest it all and buy mansions and run away with our money, which is exactly what happens and exactly what happened, right? Um, but like, you know, there, there's also the problem where like, it's really hard to custody crypto yourself. You download MetaMask or whatever, you get the wrong one and you get scammed. So you finally download the right one and you start creating a wallet and it's like, hey, here's 24 words, write these down. Don't lose them. Don't let anyone see them. Don't email them. Don't save them to iCloud. Don't put them in a note, but don't lose them. Don't let them get caught on fire. Don't let them get wet. Don't let, you know, like it's ridiculous. It's just absolutely absurd. And people are right that you cannot have 95% of people, grandmas, you cannot have them do that. And even the 5% of people who do do that, like they'll mess it up every once in a while, right? Like I know I have with wallets before. So that like can't be the UX. We've got to figure out a way for people to have custody over their own assets. They're in charge. They have their money. No one else can go spend it without them knowing. But at the same time, if anything happens, like let's say they lose their phone or they lose access to their email or whatever, they can still get their money back. They can still recover it. And that's what we're building at Obi. Sorry to turn shill on that. But uh, we think that like that's the tech that the market needs, that the tech people need. Like you can own your assets and you don't have to deal with a bunch of seed phrases and crypto gobbledygook. You're still working with things like your phone number, your email, your credit cards, your passport, your, uh, you know, an, a ledger if you want your uh you know locations you pick your phone like you have all these different keys 
And if you lose a couple of them or you get a couple of them stolen, it's not a big deal because you can replace them. So that's, that's in short how we're building that. And we think it's going to be fire. Wait, Pete, so we'll you mean- forgive you for being chilly because I definitely thought you were going down the path of like eye scanners, biometric data, something like that. But we'll forgive you. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, I'm definitely not doing that. That's interesting to me as long as the data isn't like being stored somewhere, right? Um, As long as we're not creating like servers where there's repositories of data, because that's just a honeypot. World coins. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like we're always keeping in mind like every key needs to be either stored by the user in a secure way somehow that they can't easily screw up or like generated on demand. Uh, not like no no face off in a in a huge database that the CCP can access, even though they already have all your face data. Yeah, I think that that's kind of an interesting discussion. Is uh, you know around data and with everything going to be like on chain eventually? Like I can see every part of our lives being on chain. How we protect that data is going to be interesting um, to see how that unfolds. So hold on. So Pete, so what you're saying is I should not trust whatever uh whatever basketball stadium closest to me has the naming rights to a crypto exchange (laughs) oh man you know if it's establishment that just makes it more likely that it's going to run away with your money look it really really just depends on the team really yeah it does uh something i was looking up i mean not to go hard subject change but uh a lot of people have been speaking about like the grayscale trust and DCG and all that. It's pretty interesting. You know that they, the 2% fee that they charge is on the market value of the Bitcoin and it does not take into account the discount. So if Bitcoin's discounted 40%, they still charge the 2% on like the current market value. So they're kind of incentivized to keep the discount big. Pretty crazy. I actually have a question for you, Pete. I've been asking Evan this uh, a little bit after I heard about Obi. More from like a psychological perspective, what do you think is the reasoning behind the average retail investor keeping their funds on a centralized exchange? Is it lack of education? Is it their um, their attempt at safety? Is I, I mean, any of the you know million reasons that it could be. I mean, can I can I answer this one, guys? Yeah, go for it. All right. Hey, so this is Daft. I wanted to sit in the background and uh, formulate a actual uh, intelligent question before speaking. But as a an, an individual that came into the space in 2021, uh, one of my first investments being Terra Luna uh, in January of 2021. Um, I can tell you that it was just a lack of education. Uh, I didn't know anything. Uh, Coinbase's initial like, you know, hey, learn about this and we'll give you a little bit was nice, but I didn't know about ledgers. And then once I found out about ledgers, it was uh, for me as uh, somebody that doesn't make a lot of money, isn't a millionaire or wasn't at the time uh, making money in crypto. I saw that, you know, getting hit with these fees from uh, Coinbase or Crypto.com or whatever these uh, centralized exchanges were, I'm, I'm getting hit with, you know, an on-ramp fee and then a transfer fee off. And yeah. that's like 10% right off the jump to go to a ledger. And if I'm only buying a dollar cost average of 50 to to $100 uh, a paycheck or a month, that's a big hit. Right. And it, it takes a lot of your investment away. So you leave it there, let it build up, and then you move it off. 
So I guess to piggyback on this a little bit, what, uh, and again, this is a question for the whole room. Um, what educational tools do you think would benefit Web3 as a whole? Do you think if Coinbase went back to the model of, you know, more generalized concepts to earn instead of what they've molded to now where, uh, you know, you go through a little bit of like a, a 10 point question thing, but it's only based in one token and it's geared to basically promote these tokens, right? Um, do you think that if they backpedaled to a model that was more general concepts, do you think that that would um benefit the space do you think metamask implementing something like that would be beneficial what are what are steps that these larger institutions can take to help elevate the um crypto iq of you know your your average investor i don't know if they want to though that's the thing like they want their uh, the the newbies uh funds to be on their exchange and not leave because they want to be able to have a balance of some sort and if everybody's coming on and they're pushing this education like hey here's a ledger here's how you set it up a qr code that they can scan and it's a very dumbed down crypto 101 for dummies uh to be able to get you into your own you know uh holding your own keys that is not what they're looking for um, they don't want to lose just, that balance sheet though. let me just kind of interject for just a second so uh, i would say if you talk if you talk about the human race at large I would say at least 90% of human beings do not want a custody of their own shit. That's true of like fiat. It's true of most things. Like most people want a place to have their money that they know that, uh, for example, if they die, they're, they're, you know, their contingent beneficiaries will receive the money. They want their money in a place where they could potentially borrow off of their assets in theory. Um, but like this idea of self custody is, is exciting in the sense that it's like the libertarian wet dream that we all have as far as like uh personal financial freedom and such but if you took the average person um you are not going to reach them through a self-custody um sort of model it's just not going to happen there's no evidence of this anywhere in human like behavior uh that this is likely to occur and the the complexity of managing your own keys itself is right now uh, just absolutely too complicated for, oh, I don't know, let's say someone with, let's say, an IQ of 75 who is 15 years old, for example, or someone who is 80 years old who, uh, you know, is going to forget where their shit is. You know, like none of this stuff is going to work. So centralized custody solutions are going to be part of the mix. And, and generally speaking, in finance, they're probably going to remain a, a large part of the mix. I think those of us who care about crypto, uh, those of us who want that freedom to be on our own, um, we want to make sure that's a counterbalance to the centralized possibilities in the sense that like those central authorities, you want them to think twice um, because you have other options. You want countries to think twice because you have other options. You want regimes to think twice, right? Like that, because you have other places where your mother money could be. So it's a good counterbalance, but it's not going to be something that replaces sort of central custody. Like your ninety-year-old, you know, you know, grandmother or whatever the hell is not going to be like figuring out how to manage her keys and stuff. Like, I think if you're young or middle-aged or whatever, you're in tech or something like that, 
I think many of us can understand how to use our own shit, but like a, a substantial portion of the human race isn't going to manage their own money in the way that we think. Um, and maybe like they don't need to necessarily have crypto specifically to handle those things, right? Like they might, they might invest in other things um, that do have central capabilities. So I think, uh, yeah, as a, as a general philosophical discussion, um, I think some of the protocols, I think like even um, Evan is working on some things regarding, um, or I mean, I'm sorry, Pete, maybe, or Pete and Evan, I'm not sure which of you guys are working on some projects that are, you know, trying to make some of those things easier for people. Um, so you don't have to figure out how to mess with your keys and you have solutions for um, like, you know, providing custody solutions and things like that. If like, let's say, for example, if you were to die, like where does your uh, Bitcoin go or where does your um, Atom token go or whatever, right? So some of those things are being worked on to where you could have both self-custody, but also be able to handle things like contingent beneficiaries and other security concerns, or for that matter, like run a business with some native multi-sig capabilities and things of that nature. But um, there's still a ways to go in terms of um, like building those things out. But to say that like crypto right now is particularly very good at this, crypto sucks at this. Like that's just the first admission we should all have. Um, and those things, but those things are being worked on. So that's the optimistic view. Well, I, I think you bring up a lot of good points there, but one of the main things that, I've noticed is you're not going to be able to help someone that doesn't want to help themselves and learn more about what web three can offer, especially in regards to custodial stuff. Do you think that there's, um, do you think that there's opportunity for a catalyst to come about where we see a cultural shift in what people. Yes. Important? It already happened. Go lose your money on, FTX, and then tell me you're you're not willing to change over to a decentralized version. Fair. So it's been happening. Uh, I want to hear from Lala because she sounded cute, and I think she could bring the sexual energy back into this conversation. <laughs> Lala, what do you have to say? Okay, well, I'll just pretend I didn't hear that and just make my point. Um, yeah, no, I was going to go back to your first question, Mohawk, about you know why is this happening in the first place? Why are people keeping their funds on centralized exchanges? And I just want to mention, like. You know, I think that there's also in addition to what we said, kind of a deceptive um, layer of of uh, perceived safety, right? Like when you're watching a Super Bowl commercial and you see an FTX ad that's right. you know very well done. I mean, it's on. It's like you're watching the Super Bowl. There is a layer of trust there that is just assumed, right? And so a big part of the problem is that if we are acknowledging that these are mostly newbies or maybe elderly people that aren't very familiar or people that don't hang out in Twitter spaces, they don't know what a cold wallet is. If we're, if we're you know, admitting that, okay, well, centralized exchanges are for them, then what we also have to do is get realistic about regulation. And I do believe that centralized exchanges should be regulated like financial institutions. I would love to hear what people think about this. But, you know, when you're when you're watching an ad and, and you think it's this is like Fidelity or like a, a bank that you can try a Wells Fargo, you know, you're going to make decisions that you wouldn't otherwise make if you had a disclaimer like on medical commercials that are like uh, high risk of you losing everything you own, you know, like right underneath of it. Right. And they don't have to do anything like that. Um, so I would say that there's also kind of this deceptive um, presentation uh, that is allowed right now that that we we definitely need to start um, addressing because, you know, we can sit here and we can preach to the choir all day long about, 
using cold storage. And most of us in this space are using cold storage, unless you're a super risky um, leverage trader, you know, and, and you're just, you, that's on you, right? But right. most of us know, um, if we're, if we're going to sit here and acknowledge like 90 year old grandma, like, right. like I see by you mentioned, um, you know, then we also have to ask ourselves, despite our desire for decentralization and our philosophical commitments to this space, what is realistic and how can we protect people who are still opting kind of to go that newbie route? Yeah, Lala, what, basically what you saw over the past, I don't know, really since BitMEX, I don't know if you were here earlier, we were talking about that, whether it was Arthur Hayes and BitMEX or whether it was sort of like, you know, Binance uh, buying and trading assets that it otherwise was selling to, like had, you know, available to consumers to trade, or whether it was FTX that was trading against its own uh, customers. Um, the amount of fuckery going around in the centralized exchange industry, like it pretty much emanates to almost every single one of them um, at some level or the other, where there's no way to know whether what essentially is an exchange that should behave more like a bank uh, is actually behaving also like a broker and also like a market maker. In, in traditional finance, most of these types of institutions be separated into separate pieces. So for example, if you go to Fidelity uh, to go and like, you know, you, know you, you have your retirement portfolio there or you have stocks there or something like that, um, the, Fidelity can't then take the information that it has about its you know trillion dollars worth of assets or whatever um, from its customers, and it can't trade against its own customers. Um, separate market makers like Citadel and BlackRock and other people will show up on Fidelity and be like, uh, you know, it will uh, provide the market making activity, but they'll be separate from Fidelity itself. So the brokerage is separated, right? So this is one of the issues that like people haven't figured out how to regulate centralized exchanges because they're all over the world. Um, you know, you know, whether it's in Singapore and Virgin Islands and Bahamas or wherever the fuck. And what ends up happening is, is like, like who exactly regulates them? Which jurisdiction do they fall under? Um, who's going to enforce it? You're going to send the FBI after them into the Bahamas or what? Right. So the reality is, is like there's no there's no exact um, jurisdiction model for any of this. And when people use centralized exchanges, they should be aware that the exchange could be trading against them. And that's the end of it. Like, I, I think um, as long as you're aware that that could be happening. Um, but the problem is, I think most people who play on exchanges, uh, I think, uh, assume that those exchanges are more trustworthy than, than they are. And we learned over the past, like, five years that, like, most of them are pretty terrible about it, including Binance, I might add. Like, I've, I've seen numerous red flags there. Like take, for example, um, you know, having FTX coin on your platform, but then simultaneously owning some of the token and then telegraphing that you're going to sell the token. The whole thing was all fucked up. And, and really, sh they should not have even owned a token that they're going to list on their exchange. Like that makes no sense at all. <laughs> like you're, you're truly able to have market moving power, yet you're yet you have like leverage positions available on your exchange for that. Like imagine, imagine for example, if you had a leverage long in fucking FTX and you were on Binance and then the CEO of Binance says, Hey, you know what? FTX looks kind of questionable. We may be selling our FTX token. And now you got your position wrecked by the actual CEO of the exchange that you're actually on. See, this is the kind of fuckery that I was talking about. Like they, that, you know, I think you just face that if you're on central exchanges generally today with crypto. And um, there's no great regulatory regime for that at this moment. Yeah, I just want to just make a comment oh, quickly about 
sorry, Dallas. Um, like, even even though, like, while I mentioned most people on this call probably have cold storage, I would think at least the people on stage are, are probably wise enough to know. And I, I hold, like, the majority of my assets on a secure device. But that being said, it's still, I think it's still been a failure of this sort of push for decentralization that we, um, we don't have good enough UX. And so like, I mentioned this earlier on the call, but like for, uh, for protocols like GMX, which is like a decentralized uh, futures trading platform that you can use leverage, uh, gains network, which you can, you know, you can go up to like 100x or 150x leverage uh, and you can trade all kinds of pairs and that's great. But there's still very basic UX flaws that would cause somebody like myself or like a like a Web3 person that's been around the block a couple of times to still prefer like the FTXs or the KuCoin or the, just the user, the user experience on that side. And like a small example of that is w when I put in a trade, if I'm leveraged, um, I like to move my stops around a lot and I like to move my take profit orders around a lot, especially if, you know, I'm in a good spot and I think, Hey, I, I want to take profit here. I want to move my stop above like into profit. Um, and, and I don't want to be staring at my phone for the next five hours because I have a life. Um, but every time I do that, and every time I move that, I have to like plug in my ledger again and, and enter the passcode and, and re-sign from MetaMask or whatever. And so like these UX issues haven't been solved. And so like something we're doing at Obi, and again, not to, we don't want to like sound like we're shilling too much, but one thing we're doing is like session keys so that you're still, it's still non-custodial, but when you sign in, you can basically set a certain amount of time or the protocol can, can suggest amount of time. And this works for gaming too. Like imagine you're playing a game and every action you have to sign with your ledger, that's stupid. Um, so what we do is you come in, you open up a session key, and now the, the protocol has permission basically to, to accept your transactions or, or your signatures until the session ends. So you don't have to go in and re-sign it. It's very similar to like a centralized exchange and how things work with the user experience on that front. Um, I want to hear from Yura and then we will go back to uh, Dallas because Yura's had her hand up, his hand up. Hi there. Um, I missed uh, some of the chat with DK about uh, Fella, but I'm wondering Fantastic if... insight. Yeah, I, I wonder if um, it'll, um, with Lunk Chain parity, if there'll be any hope of deploying Feather apps on Luna Classic Chain, or if there's a way to link them up using the Liquidity Alliance stuff. Well, I think the Alliance module is more about creating um, like uh, sub-chains to Luna. Um, the things that uh, TFL are doing to make the Luna Classic chain and the Luna chain work better together is primarily in the wallet infrastructure and the ability to uh, transact between the two coins as well as a lot of other Cosmos chain coins in the same wallet uh, by including a DEX aggregator that TFM is working on. Um, so yeah, there's interesting things happening, but I think it's mostly just the allowance of liquidity to move back and forth without having to like go to a centralized exchange, you know, and come back. So that's going to be the biggest sort of thing in Cosmos going over the next couple of years is the need to go to centralized exchanges is all is going to be essentially just obliterated. Um, whether it's like what Thorchain is trying to do or what Cosmos is trying to do in general. The goal is to create so many things uh, that you can do outside of centralized exchanges 
um, including market, uh, I'm sorry, including order book based chains like DYDX moving to Cosmos this coming um, year. Uh, also, SEI or Say Network opening this coming year. Like order books uh, basically make it so you can trade and do activities in, in DeFi and you don't even have to use centralized exchanges for most of these applications. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot happening and these kinds of like integrated wallets that allow you to move funds back and forth between these different processes to where you could maybe go to one protocol or chain where you can maybe borrow off your assets, yet you could go to somewhere else to do the trading, but you don't have to ever go back to a centralized exchange. The whole point is to sort of like destroy the need for centralized exchanges entirely. So I, I think the cent like regulating centralized exchanges and all that is interesting. But I think for those of us who are really hardcore about this, I think solutions are being built where we won't need them at all, which is, I think, the better um, the better the better overall long term direction. Cool. I don't want to cut you off, man, but uh, just wanted to add something there. I mean, I think like whenever there's problems like what just happened people always look for you know one of a couple of things people look for like you know what could be done regulatory wise that could solve this problem and sometimes there's there's not a great answer um even though everybody wants one so like you know with centralized exchanges like one thing like earlier today you had like south korea say hey we're going to make it mandatory that exchanges keep a user's deposit separate from total deposits and you know, that's good and all, but it's like either way, once you deposit your funds, you're essentially in sort of like a loosely defined like two of two multi-sig with the exchange and you're still relying on them to give it back to you. Um, and so that comes with a whole bunch of risks. Maybe they lose their key. Maybe they don't have enough liquidity to give it back to you. Maybe they're SPF and they're stealing your money. You just don't know. Um, and just because something is yeah, illegal doesn't mean people can't do it. There's a lot of things that Dallas, are illegal other... that people do every day. Oh, go ahead. The other problem, Dallas, that we notice even on a regulated um, brokerage like the Voyager platform, this happened earlier this year when they crashed and burned, was that it didn't really matter whether you had your assets in um, a position that was being lent out or not. User funds were essentially you, like, com not commingled, but from a legal standpoint in a bankruptcy court, uh, like everything was sort of mixed together. And even if you weren't gambling anything, you got screwed, right? Like this is the problem. And that's including um, it, within an American regulated space, uh, forget about like like foreign exchanges, whatever. Uh, if a, co a company goes bankrupt, like, you know, and, and your funds are on that platform, there's no guarantee you're gonna get all your funds back either way, even after bankruptcy proceedings. So yeah, that's the, the definition of a custodial account and the definition of, like, you know, money that's going to be lent out to your point is really, really important. And like, uh, yeah, in bankruptcy proceedings, they don't differentiate the two, which is annoying. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, like, and when something like this happens, you know, you, you know, for the, for those who, you know, exchanges that are, let's say, let's, you know, that hold a decent size of market share, like a Coinbase or a Binance or something, right? Like hopefully for some of them, it's an opportunity to say, okay, like if we are doing any of this and we're not at a point where like we're potentially insolvent, like let's not do that. And it's obviously driving a lot of the assets that do want to be held on an exchange to exchanges where people feel like those things aren't happening. There's no guarantee that even if they aren't, that they won't start doing something like that in the future. Um, but the, I mean, I think the elephant in the room, though, with like, you know, at least some centralized counterparties is still like the fiat, like on ramping um, of sorts. Right. I mean, there obviously are things like you know, there's, there's pretty, pretty poor, like UI UX websites where people can do sort of OTC with people. 
Um, but you know, I, I would, I would say it's probably a safe bet that like the majority of volume in terms of like fiat on ramping and off ramping is going to have to be through, you know, some large market maker, some large liquidity provider who again is going to have to process a lot of their orders on some big centralized exchange or something to be able to have that liquidity to fulfill those orders for people. And so there's still a little bit of that problem where we can't completely cut out maybe some of these entities like entirely for to kind of meet everybody's needs. But um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you, the, you know, worst case, you know, in, in some ways the free market is sort of like at work a little bit where it unfortunately sucks. A lot of people get burned, but hopefully it kind of forces the hand of these exchanges to be better and do better to not, you know, eventually meet the fate of, uh, you know, those around them who, you know, like FTX did, did something really crazy that others are doing. But the, the scary part is you see a lot of them, like, and there was a bunch of products that popped up that, you know, it's like whenever the bull market's happening, everybody's just in this mode of like, hey, we're going to be in up only mode forever. And who cares? Like, we're not going to go down. And like, you even see like a lot of businesses who you think are smarter than, than they are making decisions like that, right? You see like Genesis saying, hey, like, you know, lend your, lend your, uh, lend your ape. Um, and borrow assets against it. It's like, that's not really a liquid market, even though it has, you know, big, big dollar per value on each, on each NFT. Or you have like Maple Finance, who's like, hey, like we're going to lend out to like trusted liquidity providers because they have good reputation. But it's like that reputation could be ruined in five minutes. And we've seen that with like 3AC and FTX and Alameda and the list goes on. So it's just everybody trying to recreate all the shit that ultimately fails in the in the existing world and people have to stop trying to do that but it's it's very tempting for a lot of people to do that but people get burned in the process so just got to try to opt out of it when when doe was here earlier he mentioned that um there's in the crypto space if there's a trillion dollar market cap there may only be about a hundred billion dollars to 150 billion dollars worth of actual exit liquidity so that's true whether it's bitcoin it's true whether it's anything so just something to be aware of um, when everyone rushes for the exit at one time, there isn't enough exit liquidity, so the market will be absolutely crushed like it has been this time. Exactly. And that's true for, for anything of size, right? It's true for Apple stock. It's true for anything that the market cap is going to be a, a pretty hefty multiplier on like the true exit liquidity at any, any given time. All right, guys, real quick, uh, we're going to get over to a couple questions real quick. And I saw your hand up. Uh, we'll go Ann, Matasco, and then Steve. And then we'll give uh, some of these other guys to, uh, you know, get a chance to hop up on stage. So go ahead, Ann. Thank you, Sefi. Um, I've got a question about this. Um, okay, we have seen um, FTX fall down. Um, I think probably... Um, uh, Luna crashed, FTX fell down, fell down, and probably Crypto.com will be the next. Lots of red flags there. Um, so um, how will this uh, inflect the whole um, DeFi space? Sorry, sorry, I, I apologize for my English. I'm searching for words. Um, how will this inflect the whole entire uh DeFi space uh regards to regulations um because actually bitcoin started as an experiment um and now uh i think 15 years later in every um kind of businesses and surroundings there's always fraud people are seeing gates um to make money out of it in an illegal way so um, I think 
there's no way to make everything safe. Um, but when money, um, when you put money in an exchange and it will stay on the blockchain, how um, is it possible it will go off that blockchain? Because that's traceable. Um, so sorry for my um, stuttering questions. I hope you um, can reply on this. Safi, I think this one might be more your ballpark than mine. You, I, what is the question? Like, if if there can, is money on exchange, is it real? I can jump in on this one if if you guys want. Like, yeah. she's asking about crypto.com um, kind of being like the next one to go down. I'm 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 a little hesitant to start talking about individual exchanges and which ones are going to go down next, just because I feel like we've created a lot of fud. There's been a lot of misinformation in the space that I think is doing more harm than good. What I will say, though, um, just going off of the facts, I think that we should all be very concerned about Genesis, right? If Genesis goes down, that could create a lot of ripple effects. Um, you know, they had over $2.8 billion worth of loans um, lent out to other centralized exchanges, right? Gemini being um, kind of a massive recipient of them. So, you know, Gemini is is one to kind of look into. You know, when you start seeing in general these crazy returns on, on stable coins, like uh, obviously we were talking about Luna earlier. I don't want uh, Dallas's head to explode, so I won't go back into that. But even with USDT, you can get you know, 60% interest, APR, you know, like these crazy promises on some of these stable coins um, and other, uh, you know, other coins. And it's coming from lenders like this. Um, so I'm kind of more concerned about um, first addressing regulatory issues with lending, um, both within centralized exchanges, like obviously don't lend against user funds, but then also um, kind of uh, working with with uh, kind of these baseline lenders that all of these centralized exchanges are kind of depending on. So that's kind of where where my attention has been is more so on the lending side of things. But um, I think that that'll have, you know, wide ripple effects. But if we're going to be here and kind of like freak out over every exchange that is out there, I, I think uh, I think we're causing causing more panic than we need to. Um, you know, to, to just kind of speculate. But yeah, like if we stick with the facts, we can look at people that are connected to Genesis and kind of start there. I think what she was asking, though, is is if you have money in a centralized exchange, isn't it on the blockchain and therefore it's yours? Not necessarily is the answer to that. Uh, because uh, one is not all of the information you see, depending on the exchange you go to, is actually on chain. Um, it It's just a separate ledger entry. And the other reason why... Um, that might not be the case is because like while they may have assets there, may, they may have lent out um, or borrowed against the value of the assets that you have um, if there's any shenanigans going on in the background. So um, the proof of reserves is one piece of it, but the, also the proof of you know how much liabilities do you have is another piece of it. And most exchanges have no way to prove to you what liabilities they have on their books as opposed to what is actually on the actual exchange. So that's a separate problem entirely, which we don't have a good solution for. Uh, real quick, I'm getting confirmation from multiple sources through other sources that Elon is potentially confirmed in 15 minutes. So looking forward to that. Um, Matasco, what's up, buddy? Matasco, you hey, okay, trust me, bro. Hey, thank you. I, I have to commend you guys. Thanks for 
Thanks for the space. This is a great space. I appreciate that. I had a question. I actually DM'd you earlier on. I don't know, Sifo, if, uh, if you had any input. Um, while I was thinking about the question, I saw a thread by Maria um, Macella is uh, her name. I was reading Macedo. I was reading that, but I noticed that that was more geared towards effective capital allocation to a specific talent within a specific builder ecosystem. My question was more on if you have any input as to whether DK and uh, as in Dukan um, had any technically structured plan on how he could implement um, labor fungibility, because I've heard him talk about it a lot with passion. I don't know how that can be integrated into DeFi and um, what that would mean, because currently, if you look at how labor uh, is, is allocated uh, in terms of industries and companies, you know, people are looking for specific talent, but they're not able to get them. Um, you know, and so when you look at aggregate demand and how that can be optimized, it's it's difficult to tell. Do you think that there is a, a constraint or an incentive within the blockchain community where we just just noticed or kind of witnessed like a, a, an increase in talent pool into the space because of just the excitement? And are we... Do we have any plans in like building something like a structured fungible labor allocation platform that could help us uh, do this better than it's been done in the past? Did, did you get my question, Sifo? I'm, I'm hoping you have an input yeah, on that. It's, yeah, it's not a simple problem to solve. Um, what you need to have is a system that records um, essentially like a uh, on-chain resume of sorts. Uh, so not only would you have to have your sort of like identity, uh, your digital identity sort of built up. So for example, if you have a resume of having finished a certain number of projects for, uh, then what would end up happening is, is that would be recorded. And then in the future, if you know someone that builds trust that you have the appropriate credibility to accomplish whatever it is you say you can do. So if, like, for example, if, I don't know, um, the, the Cosmos uh, Tendermint team has decided to hire you for a project and you complete that project over a period of a year, let's say, then that would be part of your sort of online resume. And then later, when maybe the ThorChain team needs a developer, they could say, hey, this guy, um, you know, has credibly delivered and he's paid and um, the the tech works or whatever. It's like an Amazon review system of some kind. You got five stars and, you know, we feel more comfortable that we can pay him and um, he's worth what he says he's worth or whatever. Right. So, yeah, th those kinds of things can happen when you um, like you, but you have to build a, a very um, robust system around that. It'd be not that different from like going to amazon.com and buying some shit and having reviews and everything else. Right. Um, very similar to that or to a Yelp where you get reviews of a restaurant or something. And um, you know, you, you end up going and eating there because everyone says it's five stars or something like that. So um, yeah, I, I think uh, there's models for that all over the place, um, including um like there's some of that going on also in just web 2.0 space. The web three version of it would allow you to then hopefully connect it to like your DAO governance or something like that. So when the, when, when let's say a team of people 
or maybe the, the voters on a blockchain vote to decide, hey, we want to pay Metasco to build us something, then a vote goes through based on information that's on chain. And then you have a mechanism to get paid as you deliver that particular um, you, you, you know, you deliver that particular product and uh, it can be all verified on chain and then people can, um, sub, you know, make sure that you're on your payroll, you get paid for the work that you're doing. So that's the idea behind it. But it, it's a long ways to go. It's a, that's a big, ambitious thing to get done. Great answer. I appreciate your input. Thank you very much. Uh, Steve. What is it? Steve uh, Vish. What's up, buddy? Hello. How you doing, boss? Uh, I'm feeling good. Uh, sir, uh, I am from India, and right now it's uh, 3 a.m., uh, more than 3 a.m., and, and uh, I am waiting for Dukon, sir. Will he join this conversation again? Because uh, I have some questions, but I want to ask especially from sir Dukon, sir. Is it possible? Will he come or not? Well, I don't know. He's he's kind of a sneaky bastard. He might have run away, and maybe he's not coming back. I don't know. Well, we're gonna gonna have Elon give him a call when uh, when Elon comes on. So if you stick around, uh, both will be back. This is confirmed through multiple sources from other sources. Um, yeah, so stick around, and we will be able to get you in front of. Uh, okay. Uh, Okay, uh, is, is it possible that uh, uh, I'm ask another question? Uh, if he will not join this conversation, uh, may I ask? Yes, the floor is yours. What do you got for us, buddy? Yes. Uh, so uh, I have a question that uh, in la uh, approximate 13th of May, uh, when the Luna Classic uh, was crashing, then suddenly uh, a tweet from Dukon sir, uh, he tweeted that uh, uh, he will launch a new coin uh, in uh, Luna 2.0 uh, on 26th of May or 27th of May. And uh, that there was approximate just 10 to 12 days were left uh, to launching a new coin. Uh, so is it possible that in 10 days, a person or a team can create a new coin. Yeah. Um, the other day um, we created uh, Reese, one of the developers for Notional uh, spun up a brand new chain in about two hours. So in the cosmos now we can spin up a chain like pretty much at the click of a button pretty soon. So part of what's the new project, the new projects that are happening right now, uh, so, for example, the Terra Feather project uh, is just one example of this. Uh, there's similar examples happening for Celestia and some other uh, uh, blockchains. Um, businesses will be able to actually come in and create a new blockchain within minutes, like very similar to creating a WordPress site or a Shopify website. Um, it's going to be very, very easy. So, yes, you can create a new blockchain very fast. Well, Thanks for checking out another episode of The Ether. That was the Doquan AMA, hosted by Pantera. Recorded on Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. For TerraSpaces.org, I'm Finn. Thanks for listening. Whoa.
we blow through the dust Volcanoes erupt No one ever guessed that the game would be tough Keep it hands off when the play is a bust Plain old and just so we keep it on the one Blast off on the two Help me see the three Third eye open wide Checking out the scene Laser beam focused Starscream jokers Living off the fat of the people they approach Tell me what happens when the land fights back With the cliffs at our backs Make the last stand matter No one ever planned for the famine on deck We was walking all erect with the dead man swagger Sitting in a little den vision in the middle men Listen to the fiddle man Play a little ditty then Talk about how all the leaders seem reptilian Lost in the maze Trying to make the next Bubba-bubba-billion Talk about how all the leaders seem reptilian Lost in the maze Trying to make the next Bubba-bubba-billion Little den envision in the middle men Listen to the fiddle man play a little ditty then Talk about how all the leaders seem reptilian Lost in the maze trying to make the next No one gave a shit till the drugs all dried up Everybody died from a bad batch of Lysol But it didn't matter we was all hyped up When the pedal lit the metal he just didn't have the right skill Watched in the daytime till the night curfew Rats in a cage till they make time to murk you Got a little job that falls under my purview We gotta get this mob away from the birds view, gotta find cover, wipe off the bird poop, ride off the work while you try on the worst juice, blinded by perps who try to reverse truth, slide like Fox News just trying to lie to you, eating up the slop like a bunch of hungry vagrants, I can't wait for the day they lock us up in stasis, mock up a basement could call me resilient, waiting for the internet to make me a b-b-b-billion. In the middle men, listen to the fiddle man Play a little ditty then Talk about how all the leaders seem reptilian Lost in the maze, trying to make the next B-b-b-billion Talk about how all the leaders seem reptilian Lost in the maze, trying to make the next B-b-b-billion Channel Spaces